Humans, my name is Jesse, aka the Bizzle, and welcome to Bizzlecast episode 12, which is the first of my mini series, my Lord of the Rings podcast. I've already done full length commentaries for all three extended versions of the Lord of the Rings movies, 12 glorious hours of movies, and hopefully 12 glorious hours, or mostly glorious hours of commentary. I've done a bunch of commentaries already, although I've only released one for the science fiction movie Moon, which is the previous episode, episode 11, which you should check out. But I knew from the beginning two things. One, that I was going to do an intro episode, um, or first episode that came out before the commentaries, and that it would be with my close buddy who I've known for a long time, Adam Tuck, both because he is as much of a nerd about Lord of the Rings as I am, and also because it happened that the first Lord of the Rings movie, Fellowship of the Ring, came out a couple months after we both enrolled in college, lived on the same floor at Wesleyan University, and really bonded over the uh, Lord of the Rings and the coming out of the first movie, and we saw it together, and we were destined to become friends anyways, because we have so many interests in common, we're both huge nerds, but really love Lord of the Rings, and we're both extremely nervous going into seeing those movies and just so thrilled you know within a few minutes of seeing fellowship in the theater and by the end we were totally all in and based on the you know returns of basically a billion dollars per movie and the dozen plus academy awards that the movies were awarded including best director and best picture for return of the king the final movie and so we cover a lot of ground here it's a very long podcast but it goes so quick because, you know, it's just so fun to talk about movie making and Lord of the Rings. Say what you will about the movies or the books or whatever. We're just so brilliantly made. And the approach is very, very interesting if you're just into art of any sort, but especially filmmaking. So this first podcast is going to be a discussion between me and Adam about um, mostly the films, but talking a lot about the books and, you know, what we would have liked to have seen in there with the changes we did like, didn't like. For the most part, though, we give it two thumbs up to the movies, have a blast. Now, the opening song, as you probably recognize, is the song Ramble On by Led Zeppelin, of course, and is one of numerous Led Zeppelin songs that were not only influenced by Lord of the Rings, in which they were open about, but that directly mentioned things like Mordor and Gollum and the One Ring and, you know, characters and events and really are on all of their albums, or usually at least one track that's directly Lord of the Rings. Which is to say, you know, Led Zeppelin being one of the great rock bands of all time, that Lord of the Rings, as well as being voted regularly by English and American readers as the greatest work of sort of modern fiction, or people's favorite work at least, has influenced pop culture in so many ways. All of the fantasy stuff that we see today, Harry Potter, Hunger Games, and so many other things would never have existed without Lord of the Rings. 
So we love it. So I'm going to get started and I'm going to lead you in with a little bit more Led Zeppelin. One of my favorite tracks called The Battle of Evermore, which is directly about the Battle of Pelennor Fields, which is the giant battle at the end of the third movie, Return of the King, with the giant elephants. And, you know, if you've seen the movie, you know about the giant elephants. You know what I'm talking about. And Lord of the Rings wrote a beautiful song about the events of Return of the King and that battle in particular. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. And for the whole series, I'm going to release um, probably one commentary a week. I'm not sure what the numbering system is going to be, but who cares? So enjoy the podcast, enjoy the music, and here we go. The queen of light took her bow, and then she turned to go. The prince of peace embraced the goo, I want the night Bizzlecast listeners, welcome to Bizzlecast episode 12. I'm here with my good and old buddy, Adam Tuck. We went to college together, met almost 15 years ago. We lived on the same floor freshman year in our dorm. Probably were friends within 48 hours, and I couldn't believe that I actually met someone who was as or maybe even more nerdy than I am, I was or am. And so it was immediately attracted to and gravitated towards Adam. So uh, we are going to talk about The Lord of the Rings today. Um, the movies in particular, but uh, as well as the book and other sort of big picture issues about Tolkien and Lord of the Rings and even like movie making and stuff like that. So uh, before we jump into it, um, Adam, say hello to the Bizzlecast listeners. What up, Bizzlecast listeners? How's it going? So Adam is a very talented dude. He's a great artist. Um, he could be a neurosurgeon if he wanted to, but decided that was not for him. <laughs> well, yes, you know, uh, but masters in neuroscience, and he is now doing what? <laughs> I'm now. Uh, I am now designing. Um... I'm doing I'm in global brand design, which basically means I do a lot of ads and creative direction for ads um, and brand work for a little company with three stripes known as Adidas. Which I am wearing on my feet right now. Thank you very much for uh, putting on the appropriate footwear for me, uh, or else I would just have an emotional breakdown and probably just have to leave the studio. I believe in the language of the Valar, it is Adidas. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, you just said a mouthful, man. There's a, that the German connection there is pretty strong so, in some ways. Yep. So, um before we jump in, I'm just going to give a real quick overview. Um we really bonded over Lord of the Rings because we enrolled in school um fall of 2011 and the movie came out I believe in November. It was either November or December. So, we were watching all the videos and stuff online. This was 2001, so 
you know, streaming videos like QuickTime files and stuff were starting to be available, and we had high speed in college. I had never had high speed before. And so, you know, I mean, we were fanboys, you know, and spoiler seekers before, you know, these things even really existed. I think, you know, sort of Lord of the Rings and The Matrix plus Star Wars, those three in the early part of the century uh, really changed kind of spoiler culture. And then we're going to talk about the movies, but um, Adam and I, while we both love the books, to say the least, and, and we do both love the movies, we have a different sort of approach or perspective on the movies. And part of that has to do with the movies themselves, and I think part of that has to do with just sort of how we view movies in general and the conversion of books to movies or page to screen, as I often talk about in my other podcasts. So it'll be interesting to see what things we both liked about the movies and what things we differed on. I think I could probably guess most of the stuff we differed on. but uh, You, you could probably guess a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. But but no, I want to I take a step back. Yeah. I want to take a step back because like we got to delve into that initial that initial feeling because, you know, well, I remember one day, you know, you're hanging out in your dorm room and you're like just dressed in like a bathrobe, you know, you're eating some hummus <laughs> and you're checking shit out on your computer. And I think maybe we had already started, you'd already started to teach me how to play backgammon. Oh. Um, and, you know, we were maybe uh, enjoying some uh, heady substances. And, oh, yeah. And you say, hey, dude. I, somehow something about Lord of the Rings came up and you're like, oh, hey, man. Yeah, you know about the fact that they're doing a... Uh, a Lord of the Rings movie, right? I was like, what? No, that's impossible. There's no way. You're like, yeah, live action. I was like, oh, that's going to be trash. Yep. You're like, yeah, well, it's maybe, but check this out. And you played for me the first teaser where, you know, they started to just to sort of show individual character vignettes. Right. And it was like gorgeous, like flying helicopter shots, like unbelievable costumes. And all of a sudden this terror that we had that this thing was going to get ruined started to fall away and we started to realize my god like this could actually be a faithful and spiritually unpolluted version of retelling uh, the lord of the rings on film and i just remember we just got so freaking giddy and excited about the fact that like this was a possibility um yeah Oh, it was just incredible. I, I, you know, and we—that's how we bonded, man. That's how, like, how we how we first became friends. Is us like scrutinizing those things and like trying to figure out whether or not we thought it was going to be any good. I know, yeah. Those landscape shots from New Zealand, I totally remember, and they did a great job of showing sort of concept art, both you know, two D concept art, but also they gave us sneak peeks of the models. I believe they yeah. even released a few behind the scenes stuff before the movie even came out, like non spoilery behind the scenes stuff. Totally, totally. Um but stuff like the Balrog, which we will get to the Balrog, uh but they did not show us ahead of time, thank God. Yes. Um yeah, that would have been terrible. Yeah. Um thank God. Yeah. So uh listeners just bookmark the Balrog because the Balrog oh in the God. first movie was when Tuck and I looked at each other and both had giant nerd boners without having to say anything. My my heart had a boner. It was fantastic. Yeah, it totally. Was, everything was great. My whole body was bo- bonerified. <laughs> um, so, okay. So, it's our first semester of school. Um, yeah. I wasn't doing a whole lot first semester of school. <laughs> <laughs> or I should, I should say I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing in the first semester of school. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. Not at all. And, and uh, It was a lot of... Um, yeah, a lot of a lot of party times. 
Yeah, I mean, we were blessed that pretty much everyone on our floor <laughs> became good friends of ours, or at least like two thirds, I would say, and we're still good friends with all these people. But Tuck and I did bond over the nerd stuff, and so. You know, it was a deeper bond. It deeper was. Bond it, yeah. it was. It, it go, you know goes back to to uh, <laughs> goes back to before the destruction of Numenor, at least. Um, so we're going to be throwing lots of Tolkien nerd references in here. So I, I want to go to sort of the day before we went to see the movie. But first, I just want oh, man. the audience to know that Adam and I probably have read the book the same number of times, roughly. How, how many times, roughly, do you think you've read the book, like all the way through? I've had it read to me, I think I had it read to me twice when I was young, and then I've read it three times since. Oh, okay. Well, I've actually, I think I've read it five times myself, and over the past few months or more, I've been sort of jumping around chapter to chapter. Um, oh. Actually, last night, you know, I wanted to do some prep uh, for, for this other than just the movies, um, so I read a bunch of the... Uh, Council of Elrond, because the council in the book is so fabulous. It's just storytelling for pages and pages and pages. Um, and I also read a bit of the Aragorn Gimli Legolas section of the Two Towers. I talk in um, oh, my commentary, yeah. man, about how I loved that in the book, that in the Two Towers, they completely separate the Frodo Sam Gollum storyline from the other one. So the first yeah. book or the first half of Two Towers is just um, uh, the the trio Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, and, and then Merry and Pippin with the Ents, and then the second half is just all uh, Frodo, Sam, and Gollum, which makes things incredibly suspenseful, because in both cases, you're wondering what's going on with the other people, but that it would never work in the movies for a lot of reasons. We, you couldn't have an hour and a half of Frodo, Sam, and Gollum in, in the movies. And yeah. because the first and the third were cut up, you, you just couldn't change it. You had to have things happening simultaneously. Um, and it just shows you that they're, you know, they're, forget plot and character and dialogue. They're just structural things about movies that, you know, just can't work in books and vice versa. So as sort of a leading question to, you know, seeing the movie for the first time, what were your expectations in terms of kind of the conversion ratio, you know, like uh, in terms of how much it mirrored the book and, Mm. uh, but also sort of the structure, if you will. Oh man. Uh, I think we knew that the structure wasn't going to work. Like, the idea of splitting up, a, especially, like, for Fellowship of the Ring, this isn't a problem. So, like, you know, I had already kind of had clues about how things were going to go by the second movie. But in the first movie, we were like, <laughs> sorry, Jesse, you're doing, some, you're doing some awesome Gatorade drinking over there. You look like a powerful electrolyte recharging man. Um, <laughs> um, no, uh, what I was going to say It's just what I'm like, going for, that, by the way, man. Oh God, yeah. God, it's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, no. Uh, so that first movie, I did not expect a lot. Honestly, I was really worried that almost nothing was going to get converted faithfully. I mean, I had sort of had some things that were happening, like they started to show how elaborate their making of armor and weapons was, and all that kind of stuff. But in general, I just kind of got myself very mentally prepared to have things really wildly diverge. Um, and in the two towers, they made some intelligent and I think correct edits to really change the film. And other than that, they didn't diverge too much, uh, with a couple points that I 
that I niggle with just because I kind of have a, um, I think they sort of change some of the dramatic tension that's actually built up mm. intelligently in the book and that some of them they didn't need to happen. But overall, like that first movie is very, very close to the original vision of the book yes. with some smart edits. The second movie and the third movie also intelligently know that they can't just sort of show you one story for an hour and the, or an hour and a half, right? Because they're really long ass movies, right. uh, and then jump to the other one. That it, it's not really possible, and so they cut it up. I think in a very good way. They found ways to tie back the story to each other. You know, like they had good, they had good transitions. Like all of those transitions between the two places, they're referencing each other, or there's like a good place for those to right. to switch back. So it was done pretty well. Um, yeah, I, I agree with your assessment, and you know, it's obvious that the, it gets less. Let's put it this way: it's obvious that the movies get further from the book as each movie goes on. And yes, I, yeah, you know that I did audio commentaries for all three movies, but uh, I, I didn't do this on purpose at first. I ended up doing them backwards because. I've been doing a lot of audio commentaries. I've only released one, but I've done about a dozen that I'm sitting on right now. I'll release some, not others. <laughs> um, but I just really wanted to watch Return of the King, extended edition, and do commentary on it. So I said, all right, well, I'll just do this one. But it went so well, or I thought it went so well, that I was like, well, let's do the other ones. And so I just started going backwards. And what's great about that is... You know, when you listen to the audio commentaries, uh, you're listening to the Fellowship first, but I recorded that one last. But so, in some ways, my insights are better. You know, having mm. whatever the opposite of hindsight is, it's almost like reverse hindsight. And you know, for a long time, I thought and believed that Fellowship was my favorite of the three because of how close it was to the book. And you've changed your mind? Well, hold, oh, hold on. Mm. All right. Mm. Um, it's the closest mm. to the book, but it's not just the closest to the book in terms of plot and dialogue and the structure and the characters, although all of those are the case, but the flow of it is so close to the book. If you take out the first like 150 pages of Lord of the Rings, when you have the you know very, very long intro to the Shire, which we get some of in the movie, but also their long walk through the Old Forest with Tom Bombadil, which we will get to, they cut out the entire Old Forest section. So if you start reading the Lord of the Rings book um, at around page 130, 140, 150, as they get to Bree, everything from Bree up until... Um, you know, the beginning of the two towers where Boromir's killed, or they move that to the to Fellowship in the movie, which I thought was smart, actually. It, the flow is just totally there. And, and, and it, you know, the flow of the second two movies were very different. The feel of the three movies are, are very different. I love that, you know. I think that's a very underrated part of trilogies, and that's why there's so few good ones, is you need them to be continuous uh, and they filmed it all together, so that helped with the feeling of continuity. But at the same time, they did have totally different feels. And a lot of it has to do with the book. The first is really an adventure story, Fellowship of the Ring. The second is, you know, the Empire Strikes Back of the Lord of the Rings, where everyone's split up, and you win some battles, and you lose some battles. And, you know, it, it's sort of it's bridging the two movies. But The Two Towers is, is also a very meditative uh, trip through nature and it's like that in the book and it's also like that in the movies and that's one of the reasons that for a while two towers was my favorite movie because 
of how meditative it was. It, there isn't that much dialogue. It's a lot of just, you know, tramping through the countryside, ver- uh, countryside, various terrains. And then Return of the King is just straight-up war movie. I mean, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll get to this, but there's a big difference between fights and battles. And so, early... Well, wait a minute, yeah. but I also want to say, yeah. I mean, don't they also have totally different directors? Like, no. aren't the directors... Di- or done that, or maybe screenwriters is what I'm thinking of, not directors. Screenwriters, Star Wars, or, 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 or no, no, no. Uh, uh, um, uh, for these three movies, no. Right? Didn't they bring on different people to sort of work on? Uh, nope. Um, no. The, same cast, same crew the whole time. Yep. Peter Jackson directed oh. all three, and Peter Jackson, along with his wife, friend Walsh, and another woman, Philippa Boyens, wrote all three. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and it had to be that way because you know he'd be directing scenes from all three oh, from movies, multiple movies, right? Simultaneously. Yeah, of course, of course. yeah, I'm just thinking of Star Wars. Never mind. So, just to make this a little bit more concrete, and then we can kind of dive into the movies. The movies were produced for a total of $300 million, which is $100 million per movie. Just for comparison's sake, Age of Ultron, the Avengers movie that came out a few months ago, cost $250 million by itself. The Avatar movies are going to cost more. Star Wars is going to cost at least $250 million, maybe more. And That's okay. I, that one's okay with me. It, it, totally. <laughs> but Lord of the Rings hit 10 times their investment. Each of the movies... A, either hit a billion or approached a billion. They were all like 850 million to a billion in returns per movie. That's never happened before with a budget like that. They, you know, they multiplied their money tenfold essentially, and what they got out of it is so crazy. And so, in some ways, it's the most successful movies of all time because of that very fact. And just as comparison. Um, Star Wars Attack of the Clones, which came out in 2002, the same year that The Two Towers came out, the second uh, Lord of the Rings movie, uh, Attack of the Clones made somewhere around $650 million worldwide on a budget of around $200 million, whereas Lord of the Rings made a billion worldwide on a budget of 100 So, you know, we can maybe get to The Hobbit towards the end. I think Peter Jackson sort of didn't learn his own lesson from The Lord of the Rings no. about money not really being the most important thing. No, uh, yeah, I think I think I think Peter Jackson learned some lessons from George Lucas, but I, you know, I can't talk too much about the Hobbit. I actually still have not seen any of the Hobbits. I think you'll be horrified. I think so too, which is why I haven't watched it. <laughs> yeah, but you're not going to be horrified because it changes everything. Although it does change a lot. But no, but you're gonna- I don't have a lot of I don't have a lot of love for like the Hobbit. I don't think the Hobbit is as well crafted a story, or I don't and I don't think its overtones are as carefully made. So I'm not as worried about breaking them. Well, the problem with the Hobbit. A, Bilbo Baggins is not even the main character, even though he's supposed to be in the book. Um, Thorn Oakenshield is the main character. Okay. Yeah, you know, I mean, just give me a break. Like, what a joke. <laughs> yeah, well, B, I agree with you about liking Lord of the Rings more, because Hobbit's more of a children's story, but they tried to make the Hobbit into the Lord of the Rings version of the Hobbit, so it's very dark, very dark color palette, you don't have that sense of joy um, and childlike wonder, and C, the most important reason they sucked, they just were not well written or executed whatsoever, and the CGI it was really terrible. seems, yeah, it seems like also the makeup was bad. Like I, I saw no. That's just unrendered CG. That's just poorly rendered CGI. There were there are no practical orcs, as far as I could tell, the whole time. No, no, I'm talking about the dwarves, like yeah. the, the 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 ears and the wigs. I mean, I was just like, that is terrible. Like these are terrible wig jobs. I saw like a preview of it in 3D. You know what I mean? Um, but it was all that shitty 3D where people are just cardboard cutouts that are closer or farther away. They weren't shot with 3D cameras, and I was just like. 
Jackson, like, what you doing, buddy? Like, you you never would have done this with your last three movies. Like, it's such a stupid gimmick. And, um, you know, 48 frames per second or whatever, you know, how they did that thing where they shot a very high-resolution video, that could, I mean, I don't really like it, but maybe that's, you know, maybe, <laughs> I mean, I agree with you. I agree with you. Thumbs down. But, like, hey, maybe we're closed-minded. Maybe that's the future. But I can tell you for sure that they're, like, shitty post-3D where they take cardboard cutouts and push them f- f- further and backwards. That's not the future. That's bad now, and that will always be bad. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, your comparison with Lucas is perfect. I mean, it's almost a direct comparison in terms of the far superiority of the first trilogy to the second. Um, but anyways, so even though Adam has, quote-unquote, only read Lord of the Rings three times... He has much more photographic memory than I do about this sort of thing. Let's just let's let's put it this way. I've I've read them very carefully three times. Yes. Now, have you read any of the supplementary stuff? Oh, man, I've tried to read the Silmarillion like it's impossible. Four times. That's not true. I actually have tried to do it three times and it's it's tough, man. It is really tough. I, I just like to, to troll Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah, exactly. About the various things. E- e- you know, even when we were in college, before Wikipedia existed, there's tons of stuff online about Lord of the Rings. Yeah. The whole website's devoted to it where you could read the histories. My God, when did, when did Wikipedia start existing? It has been, what, 10 years? Was it out while we were in college? Or maybe shortly after it's, we graduated? I, I think it was. Yeah. No, it must I have been, because even... I remember professors saying, like, you can't use it or whatever, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um... So God roll. Yeah, but anyway, so so Adam, as I mentioned earlier, uh, is probably a little bit more of a literalist in terms of page to screen, but some of that just comes because he has a great memory, and uh, so I hope it's okay if I reference my commentaries occasionally, just because yes, I, I had of lots of ideas. See, what's great about doing audio commentaries, even if you've seen the movies a bunch of times, is that it forces you to look at and examine and think about things in, in a different way than when you're just sort of passively watching. When you're trying to make an interesting audio commentary and come up with interesting points, you notice things both in terms of what you see on screen and what you hear, um, you know, uh, in all aspects of the movie that, uh, that, that you wouldn't normally realize. And one of the things I, I realized was that some of the additions, including the ones that you, I think, won't like – like the elves at Helm's Deep, when I saw those movies, it had been a bunch of years since I had read the books. And because the movies were being released over you know, a two-year period, 01, 02, 03, or actually two years between the release of the first and third, I didn't want right. to read the book until after all the movies had come out because I wanted it to be a fresh experience. And so mm. I didn't realize till later what we said earlier, which was that with each movie, it got further and further from the book because I hadn't read oh, yeah. it. And then I went back yeah. to the book and was like, oh. But I didn't realize that the elves and the Helm's Deep thing didn't happen in the book until you told me when we were watching it. Because yeah. I just thought it was well executed from a purely filming standpoint. I mean, I, that's almost like the best part to, to jump in on because that to me is the most egregious, weird change in the whole book. Like the whole point of the book is the fact that this is a story about humans finally coming to power and cha- taking control of their own destiny. And also the fact that these sort of divine figures that could 
help and change the world. Meaning the although elves. they're still sort of good, yeah, being the elves, they're still good and they're still willing to sort of help you on your way. Right. They're abandoning this place. Like they're done and they're leaving and they're letting it go to shit and they're not they're not worried about it anymore. They're going back to their havens in the West. They're going to live there and that will be unbreachable and they will let this middle area of the world become this pit of evil rather than amassing armies, ally with men, and fight. And so Legolas alone is like the one elf who's still actually putting himself in harm's way. And again, you know, they don't really touch, I mean, they touch on this a little bit, obviously. They do They do mention it. But uh, in this world, these elves are these nearly divine, immortal beings. Like, they do not die. So the idea of them going into harm's way and then actually one of them getting murdered in a battle is so far off kilter from the book because instead they are kind of arrogant, they are detached, and they're ultimately not really like the heroes because the real heroes are the humans and Gandalf, this Maiar spirit who's going through to try to route out Sauron and help this world. And when you have a a battalion of them Mm -hmm. showing up, fighting with the humans and dying... It's like, well, then wait a minute. Why didn't they help out at any other battles? Why didn't they show up anywhere else? And it kind of undoes the thing that puts elves on this pedestal. You know, they're still on this pedestal based on like how, you know, fair they are and all their like crazy magical power and stuff, but they're detached and like they're, they're jaded and they're done. And it, and it removes that completely and changes the whole tenor of the whole book. Okay. So let me just give context for this and then i'm going to defend it that decision not that i disagree with anything you said your analysis of, <laughs> your analysis of the elves desires and motivations is completely on point so i'm hoping everyone that's listening to this you know has seen the movies or at least some of the movies uh i hope you know just as much that you've read the book or at least familiar with it so it's divided into three sections in the original book of which they uh you know, mirrored in the movies. The first is the Fellowship of the Ring, where they decide that the evil one ring of, of Sauron has to be destroyed, the Ring of Power, and the Fellowship comes together, man, elves, and uh, dwarves, and uh, hobbits. The second movie is sort of everyone separated, and they're trying to get some momentum in the war, where they're just so outnumbered in terms of their enemies. And the third movie is, you know, the final battles, and then the destruction of the ring. So we're talking about the Two Towers, at the end of the two towers is what I think is easily the best battle scene, extended battle scene in the trilogy, which is the battle of Helm's deep. And we can get into that in a little bit as to why I think Helm's deep is superior in a lot of ways to other, even more epic looking battles. But in the book, totally. it's just the humans fighting you know, 10,000 Urukai and Urukai are basically superior yeah, genetically, genetically modif- engineered, yeah, genetically engineered orcs who are bigger and stronger and even somewhat smarter and can move in daylight and uh, all this sort of stuff. But in the movie, the, the elves unexpectedly show up. And this will lead to my um, defense of this decision. Well, it's more than just the elves showing up, right? It's not that like, hey, there's a force of human beings there that are going to try to defend this thing and they're strong but they're vastly outnumbered and so they're but they're still going to inevitably fall they like they like ramp up the fucking pathos on this and it's like these are just children they're just children and old men there's barely a 
person able to hold a sword right. here? Oh, God. Right. They're not going to be, like, kind of slaughtered right. just based on, like, the numbers and the fact that war is difficult. Right. We have to make this about killing kids and old people. Right. To make, make your, like, heartstrings tuck. And, like, look, they do a good job pulling on those heartstrings. But they sort of, like, put you in this terrible position so that you can only be saved by an outside force. And I think you still plenty of dramatic tension just to go with a little bit more reality of, like, soldiers versus soldiers can still be a very emotionally charged and tragic thing. I agree. Anyway, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Uh, okay, so uh, I agree with you about the old men and children thing, although I wouldn't have... <laughs> yeah, right? I, I wouldn't have had a problem with it if they just had more soldiers. It seems so unrealistic that they'd only have 300 soldiers. I never envisioned that in the book. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually okay yeah, with totally. the children fighting part because, you know, I'm always talking about movies that glorify violence, and while the mm. violence in the Lord of the Rings movies is awesome, it is an anti-war tale <laughs> in the book. I mean, Tolkien yes. fought in World yes, War One, And so, you know, if my 11-year-old is seeing Two Towers, you know, I mean, if people are getting blown away with guns, they're not learning anything from that. But if they see kids in this really scary situation being f- forced to fight, they can sort of maybe relate to it, and it makes you kind of scared. in the Sort of in like a Hunger Games kind of type thing. No, I, I feel you, actually. And and I think you're right. If it had kind of been... Like, there could have been plenty of soldiers, but that also kids needed to fight. And I think that would have... That would have resonated more with me a little bit because... Well, you know, actually, when I saw it, it really resonated with me because it was my first time watching it and it was super sad and, you know, honestly, very emotionally <laughs> well good at manipulating you. But from an artistic vision, I think it could have been done better if they had sort of kept those odds a little bit less ridiculous absolutely Um, and aomer in the book i believe is at helm's deep there's not the whole gandalf has to get aomer and bring him back i believe aomer is at helm's deep right it's gandalf has to get who who else does gandalf bring because he brings somebody i don't i think it was an it was just another troop of men men i don't know if they were rohirrim or whoever but so okay so I'm going to try and do a defense of the elves at Helm's Deep and talk about Helm's Deep. So one of the things I love about the two towers is Rohan. And it's funny because in the first and third books, uh, Fellowship and The Return of the King, we think Gondor is the most important human kingdom. And in some ways it is because that's where Aragorn is going to become king. Historically, they're the biggest and most powerful. They're also right on the doorstep of Mordor. And so they've always been the ones that have to stave off the attacks from Mordor um, and all that stuff. So when you get to Rohan in the second book, you know, you don't really see it coming. But the sort of Scandinavian culture... Um, that informs the people of Rohan and, and the Rohirrim is so well realized in both the m- book and the movie that I just find their story to be you know way more compelling than the Gondor story uh, um, in both movie and books. And Aomer and Eowyn, who are the niece the and nephew too. of the king, King Theoden, are probably my two favorite sort of non-main characters in the books by far just their whole relationship and, and Theoden himself and just that whole culture, you really, really get sucked in. And so I talk about in the commentaries, you know, the Battle of Helm's Deep, which is where the people of Rohan, King Theoden decides to uh, run away from the evil wizard Saruman and his fighting Urukai, the, you know, the, the crazy orcs, uh, the crazy super orcs. 
this, rather than stand and fight, decides um, – actually, in the book, Gandalf, I believe, tells them to go to Helm's Deep to defend themselves and their people. In the movie, Gandalf tries to convince him not to go to Helm's Deep, one of many changes. However, it's an amazing battle in the book because – it's a keep and then a fortress around the keep that's built right into sort of the, I don't know, like elbow of, of a mountain, essentially. And it's so well described by Tolkien in the book. It's the, easily the most brilliant, uh, realized medieval type battle um, in print that I've ever read. I don't even know what's a close second. He describes it so well. And, you know, there's all these things like the whole Gimli and Legolas counting kills, which I love in the book and in the movies, um, you know, just stuff you just remember. And, and when I saw Helm's Deep for the first time in the Two Towers and it came out in 2002, I was really shitting myself. I, I never – and this is going to be a recurring theme for me as we talk <laughs> about different parts of the movies. Like I'll say this about Lothlorien as well. I never, ever in my wildest dreams could have imagined – such visual awesomeness that correlated enough with the book, but even expanded upon it and made it feel even more epic in the way that only movies can. I think you're right, especially about Lothlorien there. Yeah. Like that was hard to read in the book. You just, they just talk about trees and stuff and you're like, yeah, you sort of get it. A bunch of tree houses and shit. But when they actually do that scale change and the trees are like the size of, you know, hundred feet wide, 200 feet wide trees. And they have these incredible stairs and, what sort of sounded like a fun little like camping outpost in the book, right? All of a sudden, took on a like a city in the trees. Um, that was one where really the, the cinematic vision just totally changed my reading. Yeah, that was amazing. So to bridge just to, to bridge these various um, elf related things. So my defense for elves being at the battle uh, at the battle of Helm's Deep uh, is as follows. You can jump in on any of these points. <laughs> this first one, I need you to jump in on. I believe the elves okay. were. <laughs> I believe the elves were fighting in the north while the Lord of the Rings story is going on. There were elves. Uh, elves. I don't think so. You're talking yeah. about like at Ang- Angmar or Angbad or whatever. No, no, no. Like towards Erebor and east of the Misty Mountains. I'm pretty sure that there were elves fighting up there, and so that's that's why I was okay. In fact, I'm almost positive because I, I also remember when I found out that the elf thing wasn't in the book in terms of the elves being at Helm's Deep. You know, I started yeah. doing research on it, and I might have even heard this in an audio commentary with, with Peter Jackson, which is that because the elves were fighting, even though we don't see it in the book, it's referenced in the appendices. Like many of the stuff's appendices, uh. he, his rationale is, well, you know, we don't have the time, money, or whatever to do this whole elf fighting in the north, but we, so we need to show that the elves are fighting, that there are at least some elves that are fighting. It wasn't that they that they uh, never fought. And so that was one of the reasons I was okay with it. This is the Arwen thing too. Yes, Arwen is in the appendices, but the story could easily have been put in the Lord of the Rings book itself. It fits so nicely within the Lord of the Rings book. But we'll get to Arwen and Aragorn. You find anything? Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. So uh, apparently this is, this is a guy, Th- uh, Thranduil. I don't. I don't know anything about this. Thranduil is the, that's that's Legolas's father. He's the king of the woodland elves. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. He's in the Hobbit. Yeah. Why didn't they? Why didn't they join the last war of Middle Earth? Uh, they, there's some theories. I'm not sure that it actually was. Let's see. Well, so for example, there's something here about you know somebody Dale the Ironfoot is also being besieged. But what it sounds like is that the war kind of came to them. 
rather than they were sort of reaching out and fighting it. So the dwarves were holed up in their mountains and they got besieged. Or they had to then, like, you know, go into a keep and then try to, like, uh, fight off fight off Mordor. Okay, so, you know, I, I knew that this would be a temptation with this podcast that we get into sort of nitpicky stuff. Although, it's really not that nitpicky because the role of the elves is really huge. It's a big one. And so... I, I, I definitely want to, you know, get back to soon talking about specifics from the movies, what we liked, didn't like, what we thought worked, didn't work. But just to go big picture for a second, I, I called you a literalist, but I mean, you're, you're, you are open to changes. I guess I would say in general, oh, or, or we'll lead from this question, which is that it's sort of a multi-part question, sort of general sense. How do you generally feel about page to screen and things other than Lord of the Rings? Do you, do you feel with Lord of the Rings that you wanted you know, more uh, sort of one-to-one correspondence than you normally would because of how much you love the book. And th- the third part, which leads into what you just said before about our favorite parts, did you find yourself liking some things, not better, but feeling that some changes did work in the movie that on paper, if you had been told ahead of time, you would not have liked? Totally. Totally to your last point. All right, sorry. Start, what was your first one? Again, so the first question is just, well, let's put it this way. <laughs> Do you have any books that you love that have been turned into either TV shows or movies? Ah, uh, that- yes, yes, yes. Okay. Um, this this is definitely one of the most special ones. Like, for example, uh, for example, I am I'm not a big ga- I don't read Game of Thrones, but I know that they diverge wildly from the books, right? And I don't mind that idea. Like in general, I think that it's okay to have things be cinematically different. Uh, because there are different needs of storytelling and different, especially different needs of pacing. Right. Um, so Lord of the Rings is definitely a special case because I know the literature so well, and I think it's so well crafted. But whenever I see a change from a from book to screen, um, the one thing I don't want is strong thematic overtones to change based on them. So that, that's the things that like bug me. Um, it's the little, the little stuff or like rearranging exactly what time something happened or something like that. Like that's fine. That, that, that doesn't matter to me or, or just removing plot points because they're just too complicated to get into. Totally acceptable. Right. Um, so I'm not, I'm not necessarily a literalist at all points, but there are those details where I think, there, there are certain details where I worry that you change things. Did you ever see Jurassic Park 2? No, no, no. I did not see Okay. It. Okay, Jurassic Park 2, like, and making it, <laughs> making it a movie. They, like, took this book that was like, hey, guess what? It's not all nature. It's nurture. If dinosaurs don't have parents, they don't know how to parent their children. And, like, an actual ecological... Uh, uh, reinstatement of dinosaurs will fail because they don't know how to properly take care of their young. That's the whole point of their second book. I forget mm-hmm. what the call is, but it's basically Jurassic Park 2. Right. In the, in the movie, like their ending point, their literal like ending line is like, turns out that dinosaurs aren't just great killers. They're also great parents. It's like, <laughs> what? No, the opposite. What have you done? Right. Like you've done the exact opposite of what this was. Right. So that kind of change is the one that kills me. Like it's not like whether or not one character does this versus another character or somebody, you know, picks up the cheese instead of the rock. Like I, I, don't, I don't care. Right. That's fine. Fine, you know, make a movie, and it's got to be different. But it's when you when you do something that alters the point of the book, and then I'm just, you know, that's when I throw up my hands. Right. And say you're you're looking to say something different, not looking to 
I just adapt the art to film. And, and, um, that's where I have a problem is when you're, when you're trying to show different themes rather than just adapting something and trying to take its intent in mind. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm with you about thematic changes and I'm okay with some plot changes as I've already pointed out. And, yeah, you know, totally. I think just taking the big picture view of the trilogy is that forget about the plot or even like the specific character arcs or, you know, dialogue or whatever. The look and feel of the trilogy from minute one to the very end of the third movie feels to me like Middle Earth. And a lot of that. Our direction is spot on. Our direction is awesome. And I talk about in one of my, in one of the commentaries, at least one of the commentaries that the props, costumes, makeup, sets, locations, all the physical stuff was is really uh flawless. I mean, any small problems with like a few CGI things here or there was not you know, it's not that it was visualized poorly or or even executed poorly. Really I think it had more to do with time and budget. Like for example, there's a uh in the final not the final battle, but the battle, the the big battle in return of the king the Battle yeah. of Pelennor Fields, where they're you know trying to defend Minas Tirith from like fifty thousand orcs or whatever, they're launching these catapults at the city, and like whole parts of the city are coming down, uh, you know, with like single, you know, even though it's made of stone and built into the mountain, um, but it, it just there are certain parts where you can tell that they're just destroying a bigature as they call it or a mini yeah. a, a, a yeah. big miniature where you can just it, it just looks fake for a very brief second and it really doesn't take me out of it at all i could care less because two seconds later you'll have these twisting spiral shots of the ring rays on the fell beasts you know going all over the city killing people picking them up the ro- and, and that looks so real that it just doesn't you know it's so brief when there are any visual problems and you look at you know rivendell and lorian and moria i, I really want to get into some of this stuff but yeah, um, okay. i just want, would love your response about sort of you, you know for me if i had to rate from one to ten sort of look slash feel i would give it oh. at least a nine if not a nine and a half overall yeah, I think I think overall it's pretty fantastic. The only problems I have are with with CGI. I, I would rather something be a clear miniature than a clear computer generated thing. Right. You know what I mean? And they and, and for these three movies, they went that way instead. They went practical, practical, practical effects. Um, it's also kind of like the things that are fantastical can be also CGI a little bit more easily. So wraiths and the fell beasts, like boom, make them fake. Okay, not a big deal. The elephants are elephants are actually pretty good. For I love the, time, the elephants. They're pretty good. It totally they're works. Pretty for me. good. Oh, man. So when okay, right? So they're pretty good. When yeah. you then have CGI Legolas doing a skateboard, I movie know you down, hated that, which no. I love. It is the well, but there's I hated it for two reasons. One, because it's like skateboarding, and two, so, because because that is actually only one of the one of the only shots where you can really see the the the, the model that's being made of him. You know what I mean? Like, oh, oh, you're talking made, about Legolas specifically? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, also when he jumps onto the horse with one arm, you know, in the that middle battle in the two towers. Yeah, 
there there is a there's a little bit of a weird thing there but but that but i don't know good. that one was a little bit more flawless that was pretty good to me like i didn't get totally taken out of it for there but, but see when a lingering shot of like the sort of whoa whoa sliding down the nose i was like okay i can actually tell that this is like it almost felt like matrix level i was like, gonna Neo say I, I i was just going to say one of my favorite battles or fight scenes ever which i know you hate and i love is the Neo versus 500 Smiths fight in The Matrix Reloaded. I remember watching that. The second one. Yeah. The Reloaded. Yeah, Reloaded. And that you were going, oh, this is so CGI. This is so CGI. I'm like, dude, look at it. He's spinning around and kicking like 100 Smiths at once. There'd be no way to do this non-CGI. And so for me, if something looks video gamey or CGI, if it just looks cool and works within the context of what they're trying to do and it's smooth at least – you know, I'm totally fine with it. I'm totally fine with CJ Legolas. You could never do that. The only way that you could do the elephant. No, of course you could. Of course you could. No, you couldn't. You couldn't. You, you know what you'd have to do is have a lot of sets that just look like the height of an elephant. But that would look really lame and stupid, in my opinion. No, no way, man. You could do that thing animatronic for its back. And then for the thing with the head, you probably still have to do CGI for the elephant, right? But you actually take a shot of Homeboy sliding down a slide. And then you kind of change the curvature of the elephant's head and whatever to like fit that shot, and you composite them together. Yeah, but the thing is, once he gets up the elephant's leg and onto the sort of behind of the elephant, it's pretty much all real at that point up until the slide. Right, and, and I, they I don't totally mind anything sell... until the slide. Well, I know, the slide is, sa- what, is what kills me. Right, but what I'm saying is you can sell things that have already happened by what comes next. And what I mean by that is... It's about two to three seconds that it takes uh, CGI Legolas to get up the elephant at most, right? But as soon as he's up there and he's taking out guys with the bow and knocking them off and he's counting and, you know, and that's all real. I'm so in it at that moment. I've already forgotten about the fact that, yeah, that looked a little CGI. Because so, so what happens after the slide? He just stands there and is like, yeah, I'm so cool. Yeah, they, but it's, you know it's what I mean? like, the slide is flawless. It. It's, it's almost impossible to see where the CGI turns into real on the slide. I no, think. I, that, that's, and that's my point. Like to me, that was the, that was the most CGI apparent movie move part of the whole movie. I just don't care. I mean, with fantasy and sci-fi, as long as it looks cool, I don't care that I can identify because you know, it's all CGI anyways, just cause it looks more CGI than other but stuff. Is, but this is why Fury Road is so great. Oh God. Like, you know, like it's because like they they did such a better job like putting together these explosions and these actual physical cars next to each other. Like yeah. it it keeps you in the world. Yeah, like, but dude, I, my dude. job is basically to look at things that are to make things that are not really there look real. You know, maybe I'm a higher bar at being a designer and being a guy who's used to pushing pixels around. But to me, when I can sort of when I can see too much how the sausage is made. I'm gone out of the experience because I, I under, you know, I understand it. And when it feels, when it feels poorly done, that's really when I just, I just, I got to step back. So for, for me, it's both, it's a mix of the ridiculous, like that shot didn't have to be in the movie, but they wanted to put it in the movie, but they couldn't do it practically. So then they made it CGI. It's like, you could have either admitted the shot and just had him do the awesome thing, which is just felling the elephant. Or you could have done that practically, but instead you chose to like still put in the spectacle, but then you 
couldn't actually execute it well. So it was like high class of difficulty, like you tried something really difficult, but then you couldn't execute it practically. And so between those two things, that's where I have the problem. I don't have a problem with them CGI having a bird flying in the air that holds a person. There's no way they can do that. I understand that. And so that doesn't pull me out of it. But when it's like, you went for this, but it was above you and you failed. And that's when that's when I, I have a problem. But again, this is like a four seconds. I'm just like, no, oh, that's silly. And then and then immediately you move on. It doesn't it doesn't really hurt your flow of the movie. But looking at it from the critical eye, yeah, that's a moment that I'm always thought was kind yeah. Of weird. But okay, I didn't really like Mad Max. I appreciated some stuff about it, but I know why people like it and why it's so critically acclaimed. But dude, rolling cars across a flat desert and blowing them up is so much easier to do than almost any of the effects in Lord of the Rings. There's so little that you could have... There's so few scenes in Lord of the Rings that don't have CGI because it's Middle-Earth and there are monsters and goblins and dwarfs and wizards and And orcs. And that's fine. That's absolutely fine. Right. And, And so I get that you didn't like the specific effect. I guess for me... The seeing the sausage being made thing isn't such a big deal because I listen to so many directors commentaries and production team commentaries and watch so many behind the scenes stuff. I know at this point watching any movie for the first time, oh, that's a green screen, that's a green screen, CGI, real, back to real, CGI. In fact, if you ever listen to my uh, Reloaded commentary, which I think you'll enjoy even though you didn't like the movie just because I, I, you know, I'm really into it, the philosophical stuff in it. But during the Smith fight, I do a play-by-play about when it's real and when it's CGI because you and I can recognize those things a lot easier than other people. So I actually appreciate that. And yep, sometimes better executed than others. And this is why I love the Battle of Helm's Deep because it was so practical. Yes, I mean, exactly. Really? And that's why you like it more. Yeah. I, I would say to you that is one of the reasons why yes. you like it more. I, and, and, and not just practical, though, brutal. Just the, you know, the brutality of the fighting. It's not, you know, breaking people's heads with your hand. And, you know, I mean, it's not, it's it's a lot of one-on-one fighting stuff. And then they do pull back and you'll see the horde of orcs. But because it's dark and because they're dark and because it's pulled back far enough, it looks so real, you know, that you don't yeah. think for a second that um, th- that it's not real. And they just sell the, the real, you know, it, and that's why it is better, I think, than the Siege of, yeah, of Minas totally. Tirith because of that. But, yeah, so just to circle back and lead into sort of the the favorite – why don't we do this? Why don't we talk about the stuff that they kept from the book that we loved, how they executed it, and then we'll talk about stuff that they added that we liked or disliked. So, you know – what what are some of the highlights in the three movies um, uh, for you in terms of stuff um, that was adapted from the book? And uh, uh, just as a quick a, a, a note, um, you know, you don't have to name the movie every time, but it's helpful maybe to some of our listeners to you know say w- which movie the, the stuff is taking place in. Sure, 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 sure. Um, well, my favorite thing that they adapted from the book, and it could have gone so fucking wrong. And they did it just right. Was everything having to do with the Balrog? That's yes. in the fight in the middle of Fellowship, and then the big, the beginning of Two Towers. And speaking of speaking of changing uh, the a flow for cinematic effect, this is one of the I think the most effective choices that they made was to start basically from you know re replay the middle of Fellowship of the Ring, but then expand upon it and go into uh, Gandalf's descent into the darkness brilliant. with the balrog it was brilliant. And having them fight i mean so 
freaking amazing. And wailing that on was, him, too. He's kicking the Balrog's ass. That's so yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they did... That was tremendous, right? So that's the kind of change, and it's it's like it's an adaptation because they're sort of redoing it, and oh, it's maybe it's just a dream sequence or whatever. But it's a great way to get you into the action. I mean, they just that could not have gone better. Uh, And then the continuing fight, you know, I think they later um, they later expand upon it once they finally meet Gandalf again, and you see him fighting on the top, and then uh, yeah, them them fighting on the snowy peaks. And then finally, you know, and I smote his ruin on the mountainside. Mountain and then you see this thing just just collapse, and all the flames go out, and just so like, great. Oh. man. Oh uh, and God. in the in the book, they they have this little throwaway line that talks about when the Balrog hits the water, it becomes this slime creature. Um, oh, I forgot that. Yeah, yeah, and Jackson actually addresses this. He's like, he's like. Look, I know they mentioned that he becomes a creature of slime and that it's not until that he gets back into the outside air that he erupts into fire again. And apparently he fights this slime monster up every single step from the lowest part of the mountain to the highest peak of the mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's like, look, I just couldn't have done it justice. Like we tried. It didn't look great. So we didn't do it. And I was like, you know what? Rock on. You don't need to see that. That's cool. That can be a book moment. Absolutely. And so instead, you just see the end of the fight, and then That's Gandalf awesome. uh, going through his, uh, you know, his reawakening and yes. his stars and stuff. Okay, we're, also super well done. Yeah, we're gonna. I want to talk about his reawakening and Arrow Iluvatar and all this stuff. But so you know, at the beginning of this podcast, I told you that you know I used to think that Fellowship, and still in some ways, it was or is my favorite of the three. Mm-hmm. I think it's just the one that reminds me of sort of childhood because it's so close in look and feel and even story in some cases to to the original and to the book. But yeah, what's great about Fellowship, both movie and book, is that it's the it's the only one where there's really one continuous thread because you have the Fellowship is still together. So you're following the Hobbits through the whole first part of the Fellowship, and then with Aragorn, and then the Fellowship forms during the Council of Elrond and Rivendell, and for most, if not all, the rest of Fellowship, um, in both book and movie, it's one storyline where you're following these characters and their relationship they develop. Um, But remember how I talked about, you know, that two minutes in, we have Cate Blanchett speaking Elvish and the embodied Sauron with the ring on his finger, and I was, like, totally sold, and then there's the the Battle of Dagorlad, as they as it's called, the, the last alliance of elves and men, where they, def- where they defeat Sauron, Isildur, Is- Isildur cuts the ring off, and so there are these moments throughout Fellowship where I really remember watching it for the first time, and this might mm-hmm. be, I'm glad you brought up the Balrog, I'm getting towards that, this might be a good time to sort of reminisce on what we remember from the first time. Um, and then we'll go back to favorite things. But I would say there are like a number of big moments in the movie where as much as you're enjoying yourself, it just takes it to a new level in terms of enjoyment. So you've got the opening stuff. Hobbiton just looks amazing. I mean, the Shire just looks great. But yeah. I knew I had seen – I think we had seen quite a few photos of the Shire yeah. beforehand. Yeah, that, that, we knew yeah, that they was were pretty okay with, with showing that off, I think. They, in my opinion – Fucking nailed the Black Riders. Absolutely nailed them. And not just costume, but the noises. I mean, I remember yeah. being scared the as sniffing. a kid. 
it's really scary. You don't think as a, a, a fantasy as being sort of scary in a horror sense, but when you're a child reading about the Black Riders, I mean, it feels like like Nazi Germany or something, right? I mean, it's really horrifying. And they nailed how horrifying it was in the movies. I like that they would go over the top with, like, in Brie, like, all the stuff in Brie with them. It just looks so great. I mean, they all look like Grim Reapers, you know, like and Angels of Death. Yeah, the The shrieking great. noise. So that was a moment where it stepped up for me. The Battle of Weathertop, we will get back to. Yeah, I actually have a lot about that. Yeah, we'll get back to Battle of Weathertop. I, how about that when they go to become kings? Like, when, like, I also think that was incredible art direction. And it matches very well with the book. When they were like, he puts on the ring and then he sees them oh. as these sort of these, these white figures and you see the shadow world. Actually, the whole ring world in general. Awesome. Super well done. The awesome. great effects. And they didn't great just effects. invert, they didn't just invert the colors, right? I mean, it's like yeah, totally no, different. No, no, no. Totally different, uh, 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 like, yeah, like different objects in their hands, different yeah. costumes, the helms, the hair. Well, and I and love... Their distorted faces. Ugh. And the fact that Frodo is stabbed and sees himself being stabbed while he's in the shadow world, and then he takes the rings, and then the sword comes out sort of as it transitions back into the real world. Looks so great. But that's also the moment in the movie where you buy... Viggo Mortensen as Aragorn, and you're like, okay, this guy's a fucking badass. He just took out five ring rays. Very unrealistic, but whatever. We'll get back to that. Um, but you know, when they get to Rivendell, and you just see the Rivendell set, I mean, I know that there are matte paintings and CGI going on there, but it felt like... I, no, I could, it feels good. It feels yeah, amazing. Yeah, it feels great. And, you know, and then the, the whole thing with the council... So it's building and building and building, and I'm just loving every scene more and more. But for me... Well, the no, council, though. Oh, I was going to say, well, the thing about the council is that I, the council is much easier to watch than it is to read. The council is a hard part of the book to Very read. Hard. Like, people get stuck on the council. Almost everybody I know who didn't finish Lord of the Rings said, oh, I got out of this thing, there was a meeting, and there was a shit, there was like 40 pages of exposition, and like, they lose it. Um, the narrative stops dead there. And as a nerd, like I really like it. I love like, the oh. council in the book. I love it. Yeah. And you like it because it's all of the, um, all of this like background detail and you get all this world building. But for most people who are in there for a narrative, the actual story stops. Right. Um, and so a lot of people lose it. And there was a potential that that could happen in the movie too. But, but they have enough dramatic tension and enough sort of like conf- conflict between characters in this room and like Frodo looking at the ring and having a hard time and all that drama and arguing keeps you invested emotionally in what's happening. So even though they're doing an exposition dump and they're doing a big one, um, it keeps it still feeling like there's a narrative moving forward. And I think Jax did a great job on that. Amazing job. I also point out in the commentary for Fellowship that Jackson does a great job of taking some of the stuff we're told about the council in the books and putting it in other parts of the movie, both before yes, and yeah, after. Right. Um, like I believe Gandalf recounts being captured by Saruman during the council as yeah. opposed to a flashback. Yeah. And there's more stuff like that. And so, right, so they get out of the council, and Jackson does a great job of moving it forward. And, like, council's done, boom, 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 the hero shot of them climbing over the mountain where you see all the characters, and it's the, you know, boom, 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 <laughs> you know, and, and, and in the slow motion, <laughs> 
And I said, I say in the commentaries, like this is what you are thinking about when you're a kid reading fantasy. The battles are great, the war parts are so awesome, the fighting is awesome. But when you're when you're a kid, it's the adventure. It's we got a mission, we got a quest, we're hiking all over the place, we're climbing mountains, we're gonna, you know. And sometimes the expectation of the battles are as cool as the battles themselves. Well, how about how about the wizards fighting themselves? Like that to me was an inspired choice it was to amazing. have it be physical totally. they're not shooting fire at each other they're not shooting lightning from their hands like a fucking you know like a like a emperor palpatine or anything like they're for throwing physical kinetic force at each other with their wands makes them and bleed. just like slamming each other yeah and it makes them bleed and it like cuts their head and like um that depiction of magic is so good because it's so minimal and it's so just perfectly done yeah and and, and in the commentaries i go on in great lengths about the restraint of gandalf's magic both in the book and in the movies the word Mm -hmm. magic is used is it used at all in the book in in the in the sort of sorcery kind of sense of magic and they do use the word spells they talk about spells and enchantments um but it's not magic as we see today in like role playing games and newer fantasy books where there's sorcerers and mages and clerics running all over the place. Yeah. It's so this is what's so compelling about Gandalf is th- we know he's powerful and we do see some manifestations of his power, but throughout the books and the movies you're going, dude, use more magic. You know, but he doesn't, and there are, there are both narrative and practical reasons for it. Um but the movie I think does a great job of you know, sh- showing restraint when it comes to Gandalf's magic. And one thing I noticed actually rewatching the movies, doing the commentaries is that almost everything he does is based on light. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's, it, he can, he can necessarily create fire, but with his staff, he can magnify or enhance or direct light, whether it's to keep the fell beasts off of the soldiers of Gondor as they flee Asgiliath or, you know, to light up the cavern, of Khazad-dûm, um, you know, but he's also a healer. Really, I mean, <laughs> nerd alert here, if anyone's played role-playing games or, or read, you know, more modern fantasy, Gandalf's really more of a cleric than a wizard, yeah. sort of fantasy no, definition. He's a healer and a protector as opposed to Saruman. And um, this is all going to merge really nicely here because, as I said, my happiness and love for the movies was growing as each scene went on. But when they enter the mines of Moria from then until the end of the movie was just a nonstop thrill ride of awesomeness. And I love the fight against the cave troll and the goblins and yeah, in balance tomb. It still looks really good the way it's filmed. It's just awesome. And the fir- just, that's the only real time they fight together all, you know, all in one room, basically the whole fellowship. And you just don't see it coming, you know, that Pippin knocks the thing down the well, which is, I, I love, it's so hilarious how loud and that whole thing is. They, 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 they executed that whole room and scene really great, but they run away and they, they think they've escaped the orcs and then the Balrog comes in and, you know, this is where it's time to nerd out a little bit. Um, you hinted this earlier when you talked about the Maiar. Um, so for those out there who haven't read the books or have read the books, but haven't like explored like further Tolkien like, history, essentially he created a, a, 
hierarchical structure in the cosmos that's sort of both monotheistic and polytheistic. Do you think that's fair to say? Like there is a, there is a one true God who's called Eru Iluvatar, who's a creator, but there's also these like higher spirits that are basically gods or demigods. I mean, it could be angels. Well, you you can read that. You could also read it as angel if you want to be, you know, like mono, monotheism and polytheism uh, sometimes have very similar things, but they just they just have them in a hierarchy. Like you know what I mean? Like you have you have Vishnu up top, and then you have a lot of then you have like a cascading hierarchy, you know, down below. You can do the same thing with like a Trinity plus like then all the angels and other right. things that are divine beings. So I, I, yeah, regardless of which one you want to sort of read it as, you can you can make that. Um, you can make that uh, uh, metaphor work for you. Well, I think one thing that wasn't really discussed in the movies, and I think it was a good choice to not confuse people with it, is that everyone from Sauron to Saruman to Gandalf to the Balrog are really embodied spirits from a different part of the world, from an ancient time. They weren't born into their current form. And what's so crazy about Lord of the Rings that makes it impossible to understand is that the connection between various, you know, species or races doesn't always correlate with how they look. For example, uh, Aragorn's ancestors, the men of Numenor, are more closely related to some other non-human uh, species in some ways than they are to the humans of the lower humans or whatever of Middle Earth. And you know, I talk in my podcast about how you know. The Balrog and Gandalf come from the same source. They're both Maiar, you know? So in the spirit world, they're essentially equal, even though they look completely different, obviously, and their power structure and levels are totally different. They are both Maiar, which makes the battle scene with them well, now, that wait a minute. much cooler. Are they, are they different in terms of power structure? I thought they were actually pretty lateral. No, like I, 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 no I just, it's not power structure. I mean, types of powers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like how they're, you know, like Gandalf having magic and sword fighting skills, the Balrog having his own, you know, stuff going on or whatever. Um, it, it, it helps explain why Gandalf could defeat the Balrog. It would seem impossible that even Gandalf could defeat a Balrog, but uh, it also makes it that much cooler because it's really like brother killing brother, you know, in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, you know, all of this stuff and Sauron, the Balrog, as well as Sauron and other evil creatures were created by... Um, a higher spirit uh, called Morgoth or Melkor, who so so basically there's a hierarchy of spirits leading from Eruluvatar, the creator god, and so there's like the first level spirits who I guess are the closest to demigods. Is it the Valar who who did all this? I I fucking forget. Yeah, it's it's I, tough. It's, been a while. it's tough. The idea is though. But that, wait a minute, but but what yeah. you just said, I actually want to go back because yeah. one, I think one of the things is that Sauron isn't Sauron just another was not actually made evil but like became his servant and was able to trick them or was he always evil but he tricked them into thinking he was not No, Sauron was not initially evil. Yeah, okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, he was p- at least partially corrupted by Morgoth. So so one of the th- one of the cool things I I think about this as we started talking like a lot of these guys are sort of still have the same theoretical potential, right? Like even this guy there's a there's a really kind of wizard who doesn't do shit named Radagast the Brown. He's like inter- he's like into animals and hanging out and talking to bears and shit, <laughs> right? Like all these people are on the same level, um, and they have the same potential. But a lot of what like changes their power level is one their ambition, but two objects. 
power comes from objects for all these these things like Sauron is able to forge the ring and the ring is what like gives him that incredible terrible power and in order to really dominate the world he needs it back one of the reasons why uh, Gandalf is so powerful and deadly is that he has one of the three rings of power that sort of keeps him like in this elevated state um we say G- know, Gandalf how does, he, does yeah Gandalf has Narsil which is the fire ring. No, Narsil is uh, Aragorn's sword before it becomes Endor. I'm sorry. Fuck me. Uh, uh, um, what, what, what was his? The Flame of the West ring? thing? What's uh, Not Flame of the West. Um, no, that's Narsil. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So wait, is that one of the Elvish rings? Whose ring is that? Yeah. He's got one of the uh, Elvish rings. Uh, Elrond has one of the Elvish rings. And Galadriel has one of the Elvish right. rings. So he's got the fire one, which is like, it's like, it's like Udun or something. No, oh, yeah, no, right. Uh, is it Udun? We're, who kids? Who gives yeah, a shit? We'll, we'll, I mean, I'm into this nerdy out. stuff, yeah. but we're not need to worry about yeah. it. Yeah. Point being, <laughs> point being, but this is why we like, love there's Tolkien. Nerds and then there's this nerds. is why we love Tolkien. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. All right, fine. Just should I fucking Wikipedia this? No, no. no. Go, point go being, on. he's got he's got one of these rings, and so does Galadriel, and so does you know, and Sauron has this other one that he has already made. Narya. Like, how is Narya? Narya. Naria, yeah, right, right, right. So, how are like what are people doing? Like, they're using these objects. How is he fighting? He's using this forged sword. Like, it's all about you know how, what is the only thing that's actually in the book that saves Frodo and Weathertop? It's these Numenorean daggers. What are the only things that are able to make it so that Eowyn can kill uh, uh, the King of the Wraiths? It's also one of these Numenorean ancient daggers. Like, it's this overwhelming feeling that like. There's a culture and a time forgotten, and the relics from this past is more powerful than anything that can be summoned right now. Like, these things are sort of what you're continuing to feed off because magic is, like, disappearing from the world, and things are getting less and less spectacular. And so age and, like, tradition and things from the past are the ultimate power. Like, there's nothing better than that. And that's kind of the overall look of the book is actually in some ways very conservative. Definitely. Um, it's very liberal in terms of its environmentalist stance and its anti-war stance, but it's conservative in basically saying that culture and older culture is maybe the epitome of humanity and that it's kind of all downhill and it's been all, it's been downhill for a while. And so the more ancient relic or object you can get, like that's what makes you stronger. Um, and so that plays out either in terms of like, you know, being able to, you know, fight a fire demon in a pit, but also just in terms of being able to keep a forest alive and keep a a city from being destroyed just by your sheer, you know, force of will. Um, it's, it's one of the, it's one of the most interesting themes, I think. And I don't know if you feel this way, but as you, as I always read it, I just feel this profound sense of loss for all the culture that's now gone, like in all the magic in the world that's gone. And then at the end of this book, it's basically like the end of almost everything that's magical and special with the destruction of the ring. You know, the one ring that they say, most of what's magical in the world will now fade and go away. And that that loss has been one of the things that I think there's a little bit of sadness in the book that always made it a little bit feel more grounded to me than just being like, oh yeah, this thing's powerful, but then this other thing's even more powerful and it's super magical and it's awesome. Like (laughs) instead it's way more like you have to conserve like what's there and you have to like, they're precious and you're not going to be able to make more of them. 
Yeah, um, totally. And once it's gone, it's gone. I, the movies completely sell the sadness of the elves leaving, and totally. you know, the, it's uh, little things like both. Well, first of all, Rivendell it always looks like autumn there, right? So that 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 yeah, that sells yeah. the sadness easily. But even in Lothlorien, the, there's always leaves falling, and all the elvens. Yeah, it's, there's yeah, always leaves yeah, falling. Yeah, yeah. The trees are dying. It's like a waning summer. You know, it's like it's not it's not autumn yet, but it's it's not it's not in bloom. And I think something that sells the passing of time great, and uh, you know, say, say what you want about the addition of Arwen. I do think Liv Tyler does a good job with what she has. But one of my favorite scenes, sure, um, in the movies is in I believe the second one where Elrond basically bullies Arwen, his daughter, to leave Middle Earth, and he creates a vision for her of you know glory undimmed before the breaking of the world where you know you see aragorn old and then dead and then she just outlives everyone on the planet we could assume you know possibly millions of years and she's wandering through these very creepy looking woods in what's possibly an end of the world kind of scenario and it's not in black and white. There's like a some sort of like blue gray filter on it, you know, that takes yeah. out most of the color and makes it so sad and creepy. But it doesn't go full black and white. Little touches like that, just visually, you know, even if you've never read the books and don't know the import, you know, and how and how critical it is that the elves are leaving and why they're leaving. Uh, and when they're leaving, even if you haven't read the books and know all that, it's just communicated through the filmmaking. And I always come back to, you know, even little yeah. parts here, there, what I would have changed. I think even the changes I didn't like came from a good place. And they always respected the, I, I, what, what I call the spirit of the book, right? Yeah. Uh, if mo- not, mo- if almost, not the almost letter. Almost every single time. Yeah. Almost every single time I would agree yeah. with you. And I think no matter what, even with the changes I don't like, very rarely did they fall into this problem where they would do this sort of tell instead of showing issue. You know what I mean? Like they still were pretty good about saying, uh, okay, but like for realsies, right. <laughs> like we're not gonna we're not just gonna like do an exposition dump. Like we'll throw in something that people won't know and they'll have to go dig through. Um, and that's always more effective than being like, well, did you know that <laughs> Gethoniel and Elbereth are the names of da 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 Like, you know, they're not having VH1, like, video pop-ups, like, come in and, like, no. ruin the movie for but. you in the, in the thing of, like, shitty dialogue from secondary characters. Yeah. Like, they, they do a very good job just letting things be mysterious. And I, I was very happy. Totally. Although I do say in my commentaries, what I love is that they do name stuff they don't have to name. And it, it and I wouldn't have done it for fear of alien, like, you know, just naming, you know, Amon, Amon, Amon yeah, yeah. Sul, no, you're right. or like, you know, we've just entered this land or just, and, and I'm not sure I would have done that out of fear of alienating the non super fans, but it totally works. And, and it actually works in the film's favor uh, there's also the issue that only like a third of the elvish that's spoken is actually translated on screen i've managed to find subtitles by fans where they translate all of the elvish and dwarvish and everything which is pretty fun but you know do you think it adds to the experience or do you think it takes away i think it adds i think it adds oh really yeah i've always kind of liked a little bit of like of you know the feeling that yeah, you don't understand. Oh, no, no, no. I, I misunderstood your question. No, no. It adds that they didn't translate anything. Oh, agreed. Everything. Agreed. Yeah. Totally agree with yeah. you. Totally Totally works. You. I mean, I love seeing it now as a fan, but, you know, usually you can tell what's being said. Like when, uh, 
Um, yeah, when, yeah. When Gimli curses out uh, Haldir when they first enter Lothlorien and Fellowship, he curses him out in Dorvish. The translation is just something like, go to hell, you stupid pointy-eared elf, or something like that. So you don't have to translate that, because you get that's what he's probably saying just by what he's hearing. Yeah. But I want to get back to um, the, the magic. So it turns out that Sauron is also a Maiar. And uh, Sauron is a Maiar. Yeah, I didn't realize that. I thought he was, like, higher, but... Yeah, and, uh, you know, when they get to Lothlorien, one of my all-time favorite scenes, it, just in general, in movies, but especially in Lord of the Rings, is the scene with Frodo and Galadriel in the pool, in the pool of water. Um, when F- Frodo offers her the ring, and she goes, you know, I would be... Queen, terrible and beautiful, stronger than the foundations of the earth. All shall love me and despair. And, you know, Kate Blanchett is one of the greatest actresses ever and totally nails it and sells it. The effects look great. I remember in the theater. But what I have realized on multiple, you know, rewatchings of that scene is she would basically become Sauron if she had the ring. Like, potentially more powerful. And this is what's so confusing but also awesome about Lord of the Rings is comparative power levels. So, you know, on, on the surface, it would seem that an elf with the one ring could not be as powerful as a Maiar with a one ring, like Sauron is, or Gandalf would be, right? But they do sort of imply that she could be as powerful, or more powerful than Sauron, with the ring. Uh, yeah, keep going. I mean, t- yeah, talk a little bit more about the, uh, sort of the physicality of Lord of the Rings and why it makes it so special. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Just as, as you were saying, you know, like what I was trying to get at earlier, but I, got, I think maybe I wasn't being very clear is that, yeah, it's, it is all contained, power is contained in objects, and there, therefore is transferable. And so, you know, one of these elf lords or one of the other Maiar with the ring that Sauron created could also could also just become as powerful or more powerful than him and just destroy his entire army. But they're wise enough to know that this power corrupts and uh, it is not safe. Um, and and uh, yeah, that, that scene where she, her eyes turn black and everything inverts and all her clothes are flying around her. I mean, incredible, incredible moment where you start to get a sense for what this dark, you know, what the dark queen would look like. And um, they hint at this a little bit in the book, but it is not so dramatic and, I love, I mean, I just love that thing that they've added there. I mean, that, that was one of the best adaptation, adaptations and changes. Oh, totally. Uh, there. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's perfectly done. And it also kind of, it's also just very appropriate for Kate Blanchett because she is a little bit creepy and is a little bit weird. And so, like, it helps you understand why, um, why you're afraid of her. You know what I mean? Like she's kind of creeped you out a little bit. She's kind of been like staring at people and like been getting into people's minds and been able to like read their thoughts and shit. And that's kind of creepy. And she's a little, and she's definitely like a little bit bizarre and weird, but then she, she pulls that shit out and you're like, Oh, holy fuck. This person is maybe very dangerous. Yeah. And she like pulls back Mm -hmm. and says, okay, I resisted it. I'm good. Uh, and it's, it's a great moment. Right. She can be creepy, weird, even evil. Or temporarily evil, and yet the smiles that she gives to Gimli, it when you watch it, 
as an audience viewer, you're right with Gimli that you're looking at an angel of pure goodness and light. You know, there's that Mary Mother of Jesus shot when they're sailing away on the boats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's yeah, standing totally. on the like, it, it, yeah. And it's just like <laughs> she, she. But I mean, she is Galadriel. Like, I, I, I don't yeah. know who else you could have casted besides her as Galadriel. It's like because she has that depth of character terms of her acting ability to go from Mary of Mother of Jesus to essentially the female Sauron embodied. And I talk about, you know... Yeah, that's a big range, actually. Yeah, that's a good point. In the first movie, Frodo is constantly offering the ring to the most trusted people around him, you know, and get, first to Gandalf at the beginning, and Gandalf says, don't tempt me, Frodo! You know, kind of yells at him. Yeah. Um, and then Aragorn at the end, the test of Aragorn, where, you know... Aragorn is maybe briefly tempted, but mostly understands that Frodo has to go off. But of the three, Galadriel is by far the most interesting and cool because of what we just talked about. And it's yeah. that's where you really see how evil the ring is. If if, if it can turn this woman who's been around for like 10,000 years, an elf, you know, who's, uh, you know, one of the lead elves, if not the lead elf, from a spiritual standpoint, they sort of portray her as the leader of the elves, not necessarily politically, but if she w- were able to, no, it, to manifest that and, you know, it's all a show for Frodo, you know, she's never actually yeah. going to take the ring, but she does put her hand right above the ring when she does, when she goes into that crazy speech. Oh man. Oh, so see, good. I don't, I'm not sure it's all just totally a show. Like I, I think in the movie they're implying that she actually is contesting her own will and then she succeeds. And then she said, and she says, like, so it is like, so I've passed the test and I will remain Galadriel and go into the West and diminish. Instead of what she feared, she would become this dark queen. She would not remain herself and she would not go to the West. Instead, she would conquer Middle Earth and she would grow, gain in power, but would not, uh, she would become corrupted. No, I just, so meant, I think she was being tested. You know what I mean? Oh, like, she was definitely being tested. And Frodo is the instrument of the test. But I guess what I was saying is the, the, the graphic visual display that's really on behalf of Frodo. Oh, I see. I see. Um, or, or I should say for the benefit of Frodo. Um, I think she consciously at some level exaggerated on purpose to really show Frodo what would happen that even the best and most powerful and most oh, you purely so? good. Oh, I, I, I didn't, I never got that at all. I got that. Like this was you seeing her power unbridled as she almost made the worst decision she ever could have made and that and that and that even without the ring that's what she's capable of and that it was it was almost that it was almost ha- it was it was shown against her will but it was like what she needed to do in order to uh in order to fight it off oh god i mean interesting that's a god god damn is that a good scene so um, good i love it i love it and then her way like, she's showing like the future and you know things that may yet come to pass. She did such a great line reading, man. Like all, every fucking thing that she did, everything was great. does. Well, and the thing is, she's so little screen time in the trilogy, and yet her presence hovers over the entire, all you know, all three movies. That was also a particularly Frodo. good voiceover at the beginning. I mean, it was a very good idea to have her start it. Well, she's always narrating, which is great. Even when she's in person, the way she speaks, Wait. she's like the narrator. It's it's a pretty great. Oh, device. okay. I see what you mean. I see what you mean. All right, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Your coming yeah, are as in the footsteps of doom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh and yeah, great line reading. And what I love about the pool scene, um, the mirror pool, uh, 
well, I don't know. What do you call that that he looked into? The the pond or the, the little yeah, pool. Yeah, I, I forget what it's called. Yeah. Let's but just anyways, call it the future pool. <laughs> there's, some cool, there's some great things about the pool. One is that Cape Blanchett, or Galadriel claims that when Frodo asks, what am I going to see? She says, only the, not, uh, not even the wisest can tell, right? She says, <laughs> meaning herself. But yeah. it's clear based on her reaction that she does expect to happen what happens when Frodo looks. I think. Yeah. I think she yeah, just has to say that, so he sort of goes into an open mind. The other thing is, man, is it and connected to some book stuff here, it teases the scouring of the Shire. Yep. You know, you see the hobbits enslaved in this, like, post-industrial version of the Shire. And I love that they did that because, you know, they were never going to do that for the movie, and I wouldn't have put that in the movie either. But it's a great part of the book, and I love how it's sort of an alternate timeline. See, see okay. No, I agree with you 100%. I, I'm going to open this up a little bit here, which is that... Mm. when. It, the, my experience of sort of managing my expectations for the Lord of the Rings movies has carried forward in the sense of I can separate the two because yeah. I just look at it as sort of a, you know, quantum physics alternate universe kind of thing. No, no, come on. You know what I mean? Come on. No, but what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, you know, major changes in, in the movie don't affect how I feel about the book. Um, like they're not contradictory in my head. If that sounds, if, no, if that no, makes sense. They they don't seem contradictory to me necessarily. I just view I just view it as uh, I, I see them as artistic or aesthetic or narrative changes, and then I either agree or disagree with the choices. So like the scouring of the Shire and the elimination of Tom Bombadil. Um, I think are both very good choices, especially for the movies. Like they would, they both stop the narrative. Like, well, Tom Bombadil just stops the narrative dead. It's, and it's completely fucking irrelevant. I've skipped it before. I'm not going to lie. Oh, in the book. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, not always, but sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I hear you. So there you go. Yeah. The whole Goldberry thing. I mean, whatever, who cares? Uh, And then the scouring of the Shire, it was always this much lower stakes, axe to grind that you know it was kind of having the industrial revolution come to england and then have them like reclaim it and replant trees but like in versus the scope of the rest of the movie there's almost no way to make that compelling and even in the book it's just it's it can be just kind of annoying you're just kind of like yeah i mean okay yeah all right all right i want to see how this ends but like why is this still going on so like those kinds of changes are like the right way to do it and it is i think you're right a brilliant stroke because what they're doing is showing you that scene and giving you a sense of what that's going to look like without ever actually having to make the narrative go there totally so they're like hey hey fans do you want to know what the scouring looks like it looks like this it actually looked, I think, a little bit dramatic for like where I thought maybe it could go, but you know, whatever, who cares? Well, but um, remember, in the vision, the orcs were there as well. It wasn't just Sauron yeah, yeah, and Wormtongue yeah, yeah. as it is yeah. in the book. Yeah, which, which I thought, you know, I thought you could have kind of made it a little bit more like wishy-washy to not know, but eh, you know, who cares? That that's that's like the tiniest little nitpick. The only thing from the scouring of the Shire that I really love is the description of the death of. Uh, Saruman, where he stabs him, uh, and you know, Wormtongue r- runs away, and then um, from his body, 
this huge, powerful shade, this giant like head and this powerful like face like rises up, scares everybody. And it looks to the West, which is sort of the place where the spirit is supposed to go. But then the wind blows it away Hmm. before, you know, like it actually disperses on the winds and does not make its way back to the place where it's supposed to because it's, it's been corrupted and it's lost its glory. Like that little thing would have, it still would have been great. Even if it was at Orthanc or something else like that, it would have been amazing to watch Grima kill him and still see that rendered visually. But I also understand how you take out any possibility of having this, the, 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 uh, the Shire scoured. If you actually show him dying before you expect him to. Okay. So, I totally forgot yeah. about that. That's amazing. A few quick points. Yeah. One that just reinforces that they're embodied spirits, right? I mean, that's yeah, a oh, great yeah. way of showing that. Two, you know, in some ways, the scouring of the Shire is the darkest part of the trilogy because they have to slaughter hobbits, right? Yeah. They go around yeah. killing hobbits after everything they've been through. And as you point out, it's, it's completely an um, allegory about industrialization in the countryside of England. But. It's also about how, you know, it reinforces the connectivity of the world, no matter how removed or how seemingly unknown your homeland is, that the War of the Ring made it all the way to the Shire. Um, You know, I I like it both ways, honestly. I'm totally fine in the movie with them coming home and people being so ignorant that anything had, like, the Hobbit's... During that year uh, that that the book takes place or whatever, that the Hobbits had no idea what was going on, I think works. Yeah, and I think it and I think it continues to because even in the book, the scouring of the Shire, they still kind of reset and come back. Like it's not it's not like the village has changed forever and it never recovers. Like that would be, I think, too big of a change. But since it kind of still ends pretty happily, I don't think it's that crazy. I don't think it's that crazy for them to do that. So I, I think I think that's a narrative change that that is fine. And then all, and then ultimately, like you you need to spend so much time telling the rest of the story, you just can't keep audiences' attention. Like there is that kind of thing where you have to keep that in mind. And in general, like I'm I'm not particularly necessarily worried about that. And I'm, I'm kind of like, hey man, you know, whatever. But in in this case, like after so many like endings and so many like happy reunitings and jumping on beds and ceremonies and you, we're going to we're gonna get to that we're going to get we're going to get to the bow for no one you know and everyone's bowing and everyone's like oh and the swelling and the swelling and then the goodbye at that you know like right. there's only so many of these that you can do where in the book it can be a meditative like slower end um so again those are big, those are two those are the two changes that I think I liked the most um the book, but then they also do something in the movie that I think is kind of interesting, and this is kind of goes back to the restraint from magic thing, is that they sort of depower Gandalf in, because they were worried, I think, that they didn't think Aragorn was going to feel important enough. And I think they didn't trust their audience enough on that. I think actually they could have had it both ways and still had Gandalf... you know, Still had Aragorn leading troops, but still had Gandalf being a guy who was like, fighting with ringwraiths and not not becoming depowered and not becoming uh, uh impotent you know the 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 king of the ringwraiths never breaks his staff right. they they never even really face off and so that's kind of a, it's actually supposed to be a cliffhanger and you don't really know what happens what would have happened between them so instead for for um gandalf to just be totally dominated um by this guy that that was a change that i really didn't like because it's 
neither accurate to the book nor even to the internal thing of the movie until they sort of change the rules midway through. And I and I understand that was a narrative device to be like, no, 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 guys, Aragorn's the main hero. Totally. Gandalf isn't anymore. But- Frodo too, by the way, gets stuff like Frodo isn't the one who decides to go to Mines of Moria in the book. Frodo's not the one who decodes right. the entrance to Moria. I th- believe that's all Gandalf, if I'm not mistaken. Mm, actually, I think I think going it's like leaving Mary Car- or Pippin that that do the thing with it. Like, what does that say? Yes. You know? Yes, What's you're the right. the Elvish word for friend? It's like one of them who does it. And then, but Merlon. you're right about the Mines of Moria. Uh, I, uh, Gandalf doesn't. Is it, is it Gandalf doesn't want to go in, or, does, or is it actually Gandalf who's like, yeah, we should go through? I no, forget. Gandalf is the one who says we need to go back from Carhardress and go under the Mines of Moria. Right, he is like he he sets his own doom there, which is kind like, of a know, dick move to Frodo, by the way. Just uh, you know, they're on the mountain, and the mountain's coming down, and they have to decide if they're going to go back. And he goes, "The ring bearer shall decide." And Frodo decides to go into the mines, which ultimately kills Gandalf. Sort of a dick and move puts the re- to put it and on puts Frodo. the responsibility on him. Yeah, because yeah. I think you're right. I think Gandalf says we must go through the mines. Like I've been there before. I know the way. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I am pretty sure that's what happens. Um, and it's kind of, and that's kind of also kind of interesting because then it kind of also makes it that he's actually a little arrogant. And f- and foolish and like you know some of the yeah. uh, you know he's he's not all powerful right. so anyway you know it, that's kind of that's a nice rounding out but again that's not a change that bothers me like that's a small narrative change to build f- up Frodo a little bit and it's like yeah cool um, and that's what I say in the commentary exactly yeah, that. yeah. It's, a, it's a fine change but yeah. the, but to have him just get dominated by this guy just because he like uh, uh you know like looks at him and says like I'm breaking your staff motherfucker. Um, that's that's a little much, but I just I just reread some passages and I realized that it actually comes from the river scene where Frodo is escaping after being stabbed on Weathertop. Okay, Frodo has the Numenorean blade, right? And and which in the book is kind of awesome because apparently it looks like a firebrand in like the Ring World. Uh huh. Like uh, uh, so they're all you know they're all these white kings with their white swords and he ha- he pulls out his sword which is like this flaming red. See, I don't remember any of this. This is why I love you. This is why I want to do the podcast. I don't remember any of this shit. Yes. Yeah, so this okay. So well, all right. Let's go to this part and then we'll talk about Weathertop because there's a lot of nuance there that I really love. Um. So he he actually has to get sent. Like he's not riding with Arwen. Uh, Gethoniel puts him on the horse and not Gethoniel. What the what the fuck's his name? Gil Gilrod. Elf guy who comes to the rescue instead of Arwen. Uh, 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 oh, um, Gil, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Gil Pooper. Gil yeah. Pooper, I'm pretty sure is what his name was. So anyway, this this other guy, Arwen Standen, uh, actually puts Frodo on the horse by himself and says, like, just fucking go. Like, we'll try to fend him off. See, right? that's, this, is like, this is why I love their changes, because the visuals and plot device of having it be Arwen and the chase and him being there. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The water. For sure, for sure. That's I mean, totally that fine. That's great. When the water happens, the water actually happens. By the way, in the but book. you don't. It, but you don't hear it coming from anyone, right? It just no, happens. no. You, uh, or it's yeah, it just kind of. It just happens. Yeah, it it's just happens. Elrond's. You don't know who it's, and it's yeah. It's that's it's kind of great. Uh, but and I and I do like that more. But what you do have is you have Frodo like taunting them, holding the sword that's like glowing red in his vision. Now this is after he's, he's been stabbed. Is after he's been stabbed, so he's starting to pass into the world, and like they are like kind of like calf controlling him. Like it says that he like isn't moving on the horse because like he realizes he's being commanded to wait, but then like eventually he can like sum up the courage and he like you know rides forward, is on the other edge, and like 
they like force him to turn around and face them, but he still is like defying them a little bit. Okay. And he holds up his sword and like, you know, uses like the names of, of some of the, uh, the old elves. And one of the lead riders says, no, come with us, come to Mordor and takes his hand like this and breaks Frodo's sword in his hand. And so what's happening is that they're, they are, they do that with Gandalf instead like later they sort of pull that scene later and have the writer be able to break Gandalf's staff. But it to me feels like a weird transposition and it doesn't work. Uh, and I wish, I wish they just didn't have that fight and still let Gandalf be the, the ultimate kind of spirit that he is. Okay. This so this would be a good way to keep moving forward here about things we didn't did or didn't like in terms of additions or changes. I love the breaking of the staff and the flaming sword. I know it's not directly from the book, but I do feel it is somewhat in the spirit of the book. But why do you? But why do you have to take him out? Like, why can't he just do that to somebody else? Who? Yeah, what are you talking about? Well, why does he have to break Gandalf? The Witch King stuff. Yeah, because he says, "I will break him." It's to show yeah. the limits of Gandalf's power, and as you pointed out, you know there are some inconsistencies in the second movie. Gandalf, when he comes back as Gandalf the White, is fully in faith of Frodo. You know, he's total belief in him. But then the third movie starts. All of a sudden, he thinks. Uh-oh, I made a big mistake. And Aragorn has to be the one who, you know, props up Gandalf's hope in the third movie, which is kind of ridiculous if you've read the yeah, book. Yeah, but that's that's what I'm saying. That's yeah. that's why I don't think that's why I think it doesn't work. It's But like, seems- and you you have him coming back more powerful than ever. At that point, he is solidly more powerful than one of the riders, even the even the Witch King. Right. I make I make a joke about um uh during the 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 fight in Minas Tirith. You, you, actually just before the Witch King encounter, when mm-hmm. Pippin comes to grab Gandalf because uh, Denethor is burning Faramir alive. Yeah. Which, I'm, all that stuff was great, by the way. I love Denethor and Faramir in the movies. I thought that was <laughs> yeah, did a really good job being a yeah. creepy motherfucker. Uh, yeah, and the fa- the guy who plays Faramir is great. But <laughs> when, when Mary's getting Gandalf, Gandalf's like holding his staff in the air and like moving it in weird ways. You have no idea what he's doing. It's so I'm doing the audio commentary, and I was like, I wonder what Gandalf's doing there. Probably some more magic that we don't see, as usual. You know, it's like <laughs> the point being, you have to assume there's more magic going on than we are being explicitly told, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, both on and off screen. Off screen meaning Gandalf's doing, like in the Hobbit movies. The only cool thing about the Hobbit movies is that. There's a whole side plot where Gandalf and then later Galadriel, Elrond, and Saruman, when Saruman is still somewhat good, are going up to Angmar to confront this guy called the Necromancer, who turns out to be sort of an early manifestation of Sauron. When the Necromancer is mentioned in either The Hobbit or the Appendices or something, sure. basically they're just laying the groundwork uh, for the Lord of the Rings, and it's cool because they draw from some of the historical sources that aren't specifically in the books, but are from Tolkien's writings, whatever. Blah 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 blah. Anyways, <laughs> Gandalf, there, Gandalf it displays more magic in those scenes than all of the trilogy combined. I mean, his light powers—he really, they really make him into like a mage. And while it's fun to see, it, it just, it, you know. If you put the trilogies in continuity, and I'm not, I basically block out The Hobbit, but if you were to put them in yeah, continuity, totally. it, it, like Gandalf the Grey, on the surface, seems more powerful than Gandalf the White, which makes no sense. Yeah, well, yeah. And that's my problem. Like, you, you basically have him coming back as a purified, 
and second coming. I mean, you have you basically have a messiah figure. Like Aragorn is like you know the king of the men now who's coming back to reclaim his throne, and then you have like a walking manifestation of Jesus actually there, like both orchestrating and then like physically like there and fighting. Like he's the most powerful thing aside from Sauron in the world. Period. So at that point. That, that's why I really think that the movie-making craft of... What, are you saying Gandalf is the most? Yes, Gandalf yeah. is the most powerful thing. And once yep. he comes back, he's the most powerful thing aside from Sauron that exists in Middle-earth. Um, and that's the thing that I that bugs me is when they, you know, they can still have him be, like, you know, this god figure, but then still have Aragorn be important. But they, they, I guess they basically just felt that they tried it and they couldn't figure out a way to do it. And so they narratively had to change it. But I, I again, I think it was a, the wrong choice. So, but again... That's okay. Let me small, just jump in real, small problem. Let me jump in real quick about Versus, Gandalf. Yeah. There's a bunch of reasons why Tolkien chose to be restrained on Gandalf's magic, even though telling us how powerful he was. So we know that um, uh, Eru Luvatar, the one true god, sent the Istari, the five wizards, in human form as old men, specifically because you know God, the god believed that you know people would trust them more if they looked like elderly. You know, men essentially, as opposed to like crazy spirits or monsters, or whatever, which is obviously a good strategy. So there's that. You know, <laughs> so they they don't really look like that. And you mentioned how he's the second most powerful. And while I was doing research for the commentaries, Eruluvatar, who is the creator god, but leaves most of the kind of sub creations to the Valar. Yeah. Now he has to approve. Eruluvatar has to approve any like major new races or whatever. Like they got to run it by him, right? Gotcha. <laughs> but for the most part, he's what we would call, uh, uh, or I'd say Tolkien's sign off. Right, right. Tolkien's portrayal of God in, in the books is basically what we call deism, where you do have a creator God, but once the creation is moving forward, basically leaves it up to men and the higher spirits and whoever else for right. events to unfold. But. From everything I found, man, it says that Eru Iluvatar himself was the one who resurrects Gandalf after the Balrog fight and sends him back. God himself. Think about the think about how crazy that is. What does that say? First of all, it means that Gandalf was totally dead, right? And if right. God needs to do it, he was dead, like dead, dead. Yep. Maybe, maybe even more dead than normal dead, like spiritually dead. But on top of that, why now? Would Eruluvatar step out of his normal role as sort of a creator god in the background and directly interfere with the affairs of man? And the only idea that I can come up with about this, because it appears that he has not done this at all before, at least with the Istari, is that for whatever reason, in this timeline of Sauron in the Third Age, if Sauron gets the ring this time, he will be so powerful as to challenge God himself, which is really mind-blowing if you think about it. I mean, given those facts, do you have any other theories why God himself mm. would, would choose to send Gandalf back in this particular instance? I, I think it's because, I don't think it's that he would choose to do it, that he could challenge God himself, because ultimately there's more powerful things than Sauron that, could, that are actually a bigger threat. But what I think it is is that his domination of Middle-earth and that whole continent would be entirely complete. And 
that is something I, I think, you know, he's mostly hands off and mostly just kind of lets things happen. He lets the evil live in the East. He lets the good live in the West. But I think he ultimately doesn't want there to be that imbalance where it's actually that evil's overrunning two thirds of all of the world. Like, I think he still wants that middle land to be a land of balance or at least a land of men eventually and doesn't want to get overrun with like, you know, essentially Melkor's lieutenants. So, yeah, but he didn't, he didn't, Eru Luvatar was not involved in the, um, uh, the, uh, last Alliance war against Sauron at the end of the second Cause, age. Cause he didn't need to be, they were able to handle their own shit. But I guess what I'm saying is like, why, you know what why, I mean? Why, like, yeah. you know, like that was a kind of thing where it's like, even if they, so if they had win and utterly dominated, that world they still would have left like the elves still would have eventually have left and you know like that balance would have been restored and this would have been the land of men like it's like it's like (laughs) frankly it's like liberals and conservatives if the if the liberals if all the liberals uh win they still have a lot of differing viewpoints and like things kind of run themselves the conservatives win (laughs) the whole world burns down right well i talk Uh, you know (laughs) I, i joke about how you know there's basically one bad demigod, Melkor slash Morgoth. So you could have a thousand good gods, but all you need is one smart one evil god. Creates the Balrog, creates Sauron. You know, I mean, yeah, you need or, or, or Tebsim or or Teb Sauron. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, creates the situation. Yeah, right, right. right but yeah. just, I don't want to stay on Eru Luvatar too long. But the point being. Yes, I get that, you know, Middle-earth's in danger, and the elves are leaving, and the humans are really at a huge disadvantage, and they need Gandalf, but yeah, I, I, think I don't know that. why I it had, why it had to go up to the president, basically. I think I think it was that, like, like this is, you know, he he plays it cool, but that, like, this would be a, this would be a problem if, if he could just build up an empire. I don't know if it's like you could challenge God, necessarily. I don't know if he would even do things defensively. I don't know anything about his, this this you know, theoretical, you know, deities, uh, uh, insecurities. But what I do know is that like, it clearly would have been very imbalanced. And I think it's easy to see that like this hinged on Gandalf coming back or not. And so again, all of this is all the more crazy that you then on a whim sort of don't make him the most powerful thing because he's, he's Jesus Christ. Like he is the second coming. So yeah, that I, I, that's just although he doesn't sort of die, sticks in my craw. He doesn't really die for the sins. Well, I guess he does die and was resurrected. Um, yeah. but, but this, but this and gets maybe me. not for his sins, but he just he he does die and then and then come back. But this gets me to my my bigger and sort of less theoretical abstract point, which is that Tolkien really believed that whether there's a god or not, it's up to men to make the world better or worse. Yes, and I think that is why Gandalf is more powerful because he has to use less power, right? I mean... Wait, by, say that by, again. So in some ways, by, by uh, not manifesting really powerful magic, but still making major changes through apparently small interventions, like with Theoden, Gandalf yes, changes right. the courses of events, which is so much cooler than a huge battle between sorcerers. Instead, well, he keep says... In mind. Okay, go ahead. I'm oh, sorry. Well, I was going to say, keep in mind, you know, like, yeah, yeah, he's all about subtlety. But what is the One Ring's, like, outward use? It is also subtlety. It is like the like you being able to hide yourself in plain sight and that people not being able to tell what you're doing. Um, in, the, in the movies, I think it's probably wise to show it as a physical manifestation of power where you can swing your mace and 
200, you know, 20 guys go flying. But in the book, Which exactly does, what is this is, yeah, what is what does this thing actually do? Like, what will this do? Like, it's very powerful, and he'll be able to rule the world. But they don't tell you how. They just tell you that it will. Right. Um, and so they never define it. And it's still, like, I think it's all about, like, you know, subtle workings are actually the way that, like, shit gets done. And, yeah. And, and Gandalf is often, like, you know, t- what is he criticized by Grima as being, you know, like, you know, he's like this like secret guy working in the dark, like doing all these secret deals right. and shit. You know, and it's like love Grima by the way, nailed Grima in the movies yeah. big time, totally nailed him. Okay, okay, so so here's what I want to do because I do want to talk about like some of the added scenes that I personally love and mm. part, you know, Return like, of the King, uh, the, like the extended stuff, like all the yes. little things that come in in the extended well, versus well, theatrical, both book to movie and then theatrical verse extended as well. Mm, okay. Um, where I like the Return of the King is the only one where I cannot watch the theatrical cut. I have to watch the extended version of Return of the King. I don't even remember the uh, original one. Yeah, I can't. Um, it doesn't have the reforging of Narsal, does it? Oh yeah. Weirdly transposed. Okay. Yep. It does. Uh, so we'll get there. Two Towers, I actually prefer the non-extended. And Fellowship, I like both versions. So I'm going to just throw out some parts from... We talked a lot about the first movie. So I'm going to throw out a couple scenes or non-scenes or conversions or whatever, cuts yeah. from the second and third movies. And you just give a little short take on what you think. <laughs> All right? Around. All right. Dig it. How were the ends handled? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. I, I gave it an eighty percent in my commentary. Yeah, sure, eighty percent's good. Yeah. Uh, in the book, the ants make the decision to go to war, and in the movie, they don't do it until they see that trees died, which makes them more selfish. And I don't think that makes a lot of sense. Agreed. Um, so that that seemed weird. Otherwise, I loved the ants. Although I do think in the movie they sell that by selling how just ignorant and removed they have become about the world. Maybe you know. Yeah. And that even ancient and powerful creatures like the ants, there's something about visually seeing destruction. But yeah, um, my only problem with them, I mean, first of all, so when you see the long shot of the CGI hobbits kind of sitting on them, looks pretty fake to me. Yeah. Um, but my bigger problem is that in my brain, reading the book, the ants were probably twice the size of how they were in the movie. I don't know if you felt the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but. When they, when you see all hey. the other ants come and their faces are amazing, the facial designs on the various ants I thought were awesome. You and the fight the and the other... fight itself was great. I loved it. They did it in bright daylight and yeah, or thank. It was awesome. It was so I the, great. I love the kicking of the door of the orcs that you'd every once in a while see them just kick an orc. <laughs> well, and they have fighting skills, which is interesting. I mean, one guy's yeah, got a good. club and he's just clubbing you know orcs all over the place. Pretty hilarious that Saruman didn't think to maybe keep like two hundred Urukai around just in case someone invaded. But I like uh, I like um, you know okay yeah I, I I did love their animations and I love the one who's burning you know getting into that that wave of water in order to douse himself off right that little detail is such a great one. See, I'm glad um, you like that because I that would that would have been a detail I thought you wouldn't have liked because it's kind of cartoonish. Like, no, with, like no, with the surfboard. No, no, that's great. That's a great one. Like I, I love, always, like, I love when Legolas surfs in, in, in the. In, yeah. yeah. Okay, we'll get there. We'll get right, there. Yeah, there's a there's a difference in character. Like the we'll one is there. like is like this guy's blonde and he's so cool, and the other one's just like a cute thing. I don't know. I don't mind things that are cute, but it just. Uh, All right. Yeah. So, so there, yeah, keep going. there are about three or four scenes that were either totally cut or partially cut between Eowyn and Aragorn. 
I personally, both in the books and movies, Aomer and Eowyn are my favorite non-main characters. Carl Urban as Aomer and Miranda Otto as Eowyn. Brilliant casting. I totally buy their chemistry. I buy her chemistry with Vigo. They cut out a bunch of stuff with her and Vigo in the second movie. So I guess my bigger question is, were you okay with it? And uh, to frame it another way, when you, if you watch the theatrical cut, do you still kind of get all you need to know about Eowyn and Aragorn's relationship? Because they also cut out stuff about her background, her father being killed when she was young. They cut out the part where Aragorn says how old he is and that he met Theoden when Theoden was young. That's, that's the one I like. Okay. That's the one that I wish they wouldn't miss. That that is interesting to me. I, yeah, I the think rest of the stuff I agree. You it, you can lose it, and it's not. It doesn't. It doesn't hurt anything. Pretty much all, the additional stuff that I would keep was anything with Aowen or Aomer, and everything with Merry and Pippin that wasn't in the theatrical cut. I don't think you know, like where they're drinking the Entwater and they get taller. It's great in the book, but you just don't yeah, need that yeah. in the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess yeah. just. I agree. I agree with you totally. Yeah. Okay. Hey, what about the wargs? Are the wargs in, not in the extended, or are they? Oh in the no, they are well? the warg battle. Oh, yeah. yeah, hell yeah, I love the warg that's, battle. Yeah, that's something that's not in the book, but I just but I love it, and I had always wanted to see them, so I was just really excited that they, well, because, they threw in that little action sequence. Yeah, and this is related to what I was talking about before about how in the Two Towers movie that they interspliced the two sections of the Two Towers book where they're separate stories. You yeah. needed an awesome action scene. In the middle of right. the movie, sure, sure, and, sure, and, sure, and, sure. And on the way, on you know, exposed on the way to Helm's Deep is the perfect time to do it. Um, and actually, you know, like Battle of Helm's Deep or Battle of the Hornburg, it's actually called, but they never really mention that. Um, the fighting is so visceral, you know. Even though there's a lot of CGI going on, it's very bl- uh, bloody and, and very violent. And I just there's something about the, the fighting that's very primal in the second movie that you don't see in the other ones. Yeah, I think the cuts are maybe a little bit better in the second movie. They're, they cut a little quick away from action and fellowship yep. in general. But sometimes you don't get a total sense of what's happening. I think Two Towers is better. Anyway, all right, keep going. What else you got? Yeah, okay, we're going, we're going here. Okay, so, you know, one of my complaints, um, or I should say, one thing I will give the extended cut of Two Towers is that Faramir and his men really torture the shit out of Gollum. And they take all of that out for the most part in the the movie. And I think without the torture, Smeagol going back to Bad Gollum, it's just not sold well enough. Agreed. You know, you can sort of tell they, they've tortured him in the because they've redeemed cut. him too much already. Right. You know what I mean? If you don't redeem, if you hadn't spent that much time redeeming him, it wouldn't matter. But you've made him into a protagonist, and then to not like have something bad happen to him to make him go evil again is is bullshit. Yeah, right. I agree with you. Good point. Although I will say, and this this is I think Tolkien's perspective was that as great as it is to see good Smeagol for a short period, he was always a hair's breadth away from turning back to bad Gollum. You know, and I think just a little bit of torture and the impression that Frodo betrayed him, even though he didn't, he actually saved his life. That's really all it took. But the torture, there was no blood, there was no broken bones. There's decapitations throughout the movies. I don't. I mean, it doesn't seem like they would have cut that for PG thirteen reasons. You know. No, it's, I think it, I think it was time. I think they just cut it, it for time. Yeah, but it's ten seconds that would have sold the sold him going back like way better. That, that's that's one of the ones that I thought had to be in the movie. I agree with you. That's a, that's a good point. Um, but then, you know, and yeah. that and that goes into. I mean, we didn't even touch Gollum and how you know. I think he he does 
definitely look a little dated um, at now, but it was. I it think was he a, still looks great, personally. But yeah, I he well, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think especially for the time, he looked incredible. Because remember, like it, it was, was basically great. Jar Jar Binks and then Gollum. I mean, that yeah, those were the yeah, first totally. two. I still think you could have done it with a really skinny, weird-looking dude, and it would have still probably still been a little bit better. But uh, and maybe just done the face, but then like kept the body. But you know how like you had circus doing the movements. Yeah, you could have had a really like weird skinny guy that you then sort of shrank, and then you had like a CGI head on. I don't know. Part that actually is the worst part to me is actually hands and wrists, and they did great work on his hands. I mean, especially for the time, they did an incredible job. Uh, but anyway, uh, sorry to go back to what you were saying. Uh, yeah, it, you know they made him friendlier right. and more good Smeagol in the movie than he ever becomes in the book. Right, you, you had to I mean? do it though. You had to. I mean, that, otherwise you just hate him the whole time. Well, because you also have to not only sell the events of Gollum in the in that particular movie in the Two Towers and his relationship to the Hobbits, but you also had to sort of pre-sell what's going to happen in the third movie that Frodo would get to the point where between the ring and Gollum both manipulating him that he would actually tell Sam to go and and believe Go- believe Gollum's lies so you needed you know th- you needed to see a somewhat of, of a good side of Smeagol even if it didn't last long in Although order to sell Frodo's trust of him later yeah that's also a change right right what's a change I, that like that Sam doesn't actually go away in the book no i'm talking about in the movie yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying, but that, like, so what I mean is, like, if you didn't ever have him go good, you wouldn't, you know what I mean? Like, they're they're adding in that stuff because they kind of thought there wasn't enough going on, and they they may have been right. Like, it may be enough in the book to just have it be this simmering tension the whole time, mm-hmm. whereas in the movie, you may have actually needed overt drama between characters. I, I, uh, yeah, that was another thing that I always kind of wondered whether or not we really needed to have him distrust Sam because that never happens in the book. They just go into the uh, into Kirithungal together and Gollum just disappears. And then, and oh, and actually, Kirithungal is a whole thing. I, did you like Shilob? I really like Shilob. Love Shilob, love uh, everything from Minas Morgul through the end of that movie in terms of Mordor. It looks amazing. Minas okay. Morgul design was cooler than I ever could have possibly imagined with the Matrix okay. screen stuff going on, yeah. The one environment I did, did not like was Kirithungal. Because in the book, it's this flat, perfectly made tunnel. You know, it's like a man-made tunnel. It's not kind of like a craggy rock with a bunch of spiderwebs and skeletons and stuff. They kind of made right. it like a horror movie set right. instead of just like an utterly dark, like, but like basically like it's a labyrinth. Like it's a maze in there. Um, and uh, they kind of they kind of made it this monster's den instead. It was, was a maze. Frodo was constantly getting lost. Yeah, but it got maze because it was like craggy and it's wet and you know there's and it's like it's natural. It's like a natural cave rather than it being a man-made tunnel with absolutely square walls and they just had their hands along the walls and then they, every once in a while they feel darkness. You know, uh, yeah, I don't know. That that was the other thing that I thought was an interesting change and I think it was probably good. You know, it makes sense why they made the change for the movie, but I always kind of wondered what does that scene look like when um. When it's just them walking in a fucking hallway. You know what I mean? Like, right. I wondered kind of what that would have looked like. And maybe it would have been just boring as shit. Well, I think so. what they did um, is they, they had three or four um, 
set rooms built that they would keep redressing and moving around and changing. If that, that's the whole thing. Osgiliath, for me, looked amazing in Two Towers and Return of the King. The reality was that was just a handful of sets, and Faramir and his men would run through for a couple seconds, and then they'd move everything around, and then they'd keep running. And you know, <laughs> That's movie-making. That's yeah, what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, for sure. E- even for when sure. you know it's happening, it's so exciting. Um, and uh, so to so, so bridge the last couple things talking about, um, so – I mean, the whole scene where it's going back and forth, where you have Gandalf and Pippin overlooking Mordor in the third movie, and Gandalf's explaining everything that's going on, and simultaneously, Sam and Frodo have got to the bottom of the steps with Gollum to Kirithungal. Minas Morgul looks amazing, and the whole thing with the gargoyles and you know Frodo being drawn to it, and they have to pull him off, and then the doors, the second they pull him off, the doors open. Out marches the army, and you think that's scary enough, and then all of a sudden you hear the screeching. And one of the things I love about the movies is not just how awesome the flying Nazgul look, the fell beasts, but the way they film it, it always is a surprise. Like the very first time you see the fell beasts at the beginning of Two Towers when they're in the dead marshes, you hear it first. And then there's a close-up on the ring race head, and then it pans back, and yeah, you see yeah, the yeah, fell yeah, beast. Yeah, yeah. And you're just like, oh my god, like, and you know, and and, and their voices are spells. You know, so that's the thing. There is magic going on that just isn't called magic. You know, yeah. I mean, there's a reason why everyone cowers in fear. You know, in role-playing games, we would call that a fear spell, right, or something like that. Um, and so I, I, I don't know. I, I loved the fell beast and ring race overall. I, I thought it was great. Okay. Um, yeah, so Eowyn killing the witch King of Angmar. Thumbs up. Huge thumbs up. I thought it felt totally from the book. I yeah. mean, there were some differences, but nothing. Yeah, major. It's fine. Yeah. And you had to it's- have her say that line. I am no man. You know, if you're a reader, mm-hmm. you don't have to, cause you know, the prophecy or whatever, that you no know, no man can kill him, but for the women out there, and this is the thing with Arwen, you need relatable characters for girls and for women. And God, Eowyn is just so badass. She takes out the elephant with the two swords. Mary steering the horse takes out yeah, the yeah, elephant's yeah. knees. Like that's just freaking great. I think. Uh, I think. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, I think. I think she's a lot more relatable than Arwen ever is. But yeah, well, that's I, the point. I, I, yeah, she's she's much more a, a, a believable. A female protagonist. Uh, I, 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 yeah, I think she does a great job. She's awesome. Well, I think, I think that's why Arwen, and this goes back to what we talked about w- w- way towards the beginning about the love triangle, is that Arwen's presence makes Eowyn's presence or relationship with Aragorn more interesting because part of you or part of me is going, dude, go with Eowyn, you know? I mean, it, you know, it's debatable who's more beautiful. I guess Liv Tyler is probably a little bit more beautiful from an objective uh, standpoint. Yeah, but, I mean, come on. Yeah, but, and, you know, it, it, and this is one of the things I talk about, is that Aragorn's the rightful king of Gondor, but there hasn't been a king from his line in 3,000 years, and they're from Numenor. They're not even natives to Gondor. So I could understand why Boromir and Denethor would think that people like someone like Aragorn is an imposter. Their bloodlines are from a totally different part of the world. They're not Gondorian. He marries an elf, right? So they're going to have non-Gondorian children. Um, I don't know. I, th- th- this might no, be no, no, but Gondor. But Gondor yeah. was built by the Numenorians. Like it was it, built by the Numenorians, but this sort of average folk of Gondor were lesser men that were already there. Like sort of yeah. the average like working class person of Gondor, if you will, 
it does not have Numenorian blood, as far as I can tell, or not much. Yeah, no, the, the bloodlines are not as carefully preserved, for sure. Uh, and there are just other men that like flocked there and worked there. But the building of the place, the the, the planting of the trees, like the city, like it is still like it is it is basically like this one of the last vestiges of this culture being run by a skeleton crew. But like, yeah, the, those people lack the former glory. But it is not like a Gondorian city. It is a outpost of Numenor. Sure. Um, but yeah. I guess I guess you know there are. I think some- it's less about native. You know, like I don't think I'm not sure they're actually hinting at that very much, aside no. from just the fact that like it's just you haven't been around yet. But right. I, I like in the book they they do not have him step inside the walls. I, I, they, they do this in the movie too, yeah, where he doesn't step inside the walls because he doesn't want to challenge. He doesn't actually want to make it official. He doesn't want to be the returning king until like he's actually capable of of ruling the place, right? Well, after Battle of Pelennor Fields, he goes in when they have the aftermath. Remember in okay. Gimli's Gimli's sitting in the steward's chair smoking his pipe like next to the throne. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's cute. It's awesome. God bless John okay. Reese Davis. Gimli is so well realized from the book, in my opinion. Okay, the only line of his that bugs me is the fact that he knows the words for nervous system <laughs> when he has it. Okay, has so that's an added scene. Someone's brain. I know and that thing is yes. so like, dude, come on, say say in his face or in his head, like, why nervous system? That's so funny that you say that because that is a scene I they really should have kept in the theatrical. It's so funny. It's probably the funniest exchange that the two of them have in the whole three movies. Yeah, it is. That, that's that's an extended one. Yeah. Oh, that's also stupid. That needs to be yeah. in the in the yeah. movie. I, I agree even, with you. Even about though the, I have a problem with the line itself, it still is that that moment in that scene is fantastic. I know what you're saying, but a we have to assume that their language does not correlate directly with our language. B, yeah, all right, all right. It, it just the flow. It's just great writing. I mean, the flow of the writing and how he delivers it, it but just works. You- and then, then he hits the axe I've and the guy's axe, like leg moves. I got my axe embedded in his, he could say like embedded in his brain. You know, like you could say brain. I like nervous would, system in that. Uh, and so, but I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. So, um, all right. Well, let's, let's just jump to a minor, few more The most minor little like fly fart of, of, of nitpicks on that one. Yeah. I have, but, yeah. I have a bunch in uh, Return of the King. Any, anything else you want to comment on Two Towers? Again, work battle, really good. Yeah. I can't think of anything else. Do you agree with me, or I say, would you agree that in the movies, like in the book, that the the kingdom of Rohan is both more compelling and more fully realized than Gondor? No. I actually think that in the movies I agree, but in the book I disagree. Really? In the book, I f- it feels like a like a like a way stop, and it's not. I think they actually did an incredible job making that place feel interesting to me, because in normally I I just kind of I was a little bored by it in the book, but in the movies they make it very vibrant and and really wonderful. What Rohan? Yeah, the whole all the whole first section of Two Towers is Rohan. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm not that. I don't mean just Edoras specifically. I mean the whole the people and the. The you know the names and the and the lineages and the weapons and the whole aesthetic. Yeah, no. Ultimately, I I was always way more interested in like Gondor and Numenor and like what that was. And this kind of seemed like okay, well, we need some cavalry, so let's go get them. Um, hmm. But in the in the movie, they do a great job making that feel very appealing. And um, and Gondor, yeah, is kind of a less fleshed out, less less amazing thing in the comparison. Yeah, I think it's just a difference of opinion. Because Rohan is one thing that I was very aware of 
in terms in of its book. detail in the book before and after I saw the movie. I wasn't swayed. Okay. I mean, I, I liked it more after seeing the movie, but I already liked it a ton. And Aomer and Ao, I mean, Aomer was like my like idol as like a little kid. Like I wanted to be Aomer. He just seemed like the coolest guy ever. Oh, that's and, very interesting. Yeah, I loved Aomer. Plus, I have the little sister. My little sister, you know, so a little uh-huh. brother sister relationship oh, between them. I love. Maybe yeah. that's maybe that's part of it. And the yeah, fact, no, and for the fact me, that I was never the... captivated by them. I was never captivated by them. Interesting. Okay. I mean, I liked I liked all the stuff that happened, but it. But to me, like I was just itching to get to Gondor. I guess Gondor. I think. Yeah. And in the book, they also I think do a better job making Gondor appear interesting. We barely like, better... see any civilians in Gondor. Yeah, it's kind of a weird thing. Yep. In the in the in the movie. But in yep. the book they do a much better job like flushing this out and right. you know talking about that gorgeous tree and like what it means and they, they, to me that was always that always came off very well. And it was very it was a little clinical in the movie and it kind of just had to be a set piece. I also just love, you know, with the Battle of Pelennor Fields and Return of the King that, you know, how fitting is it that the Rohirrim who were almost annihilated themselves not long before this and you know, seemingly are not as advanced sort of technologically. Um, you know, they're more Viking, whereas uh, Gondor is more Roman, I guess you would say, right? Yeah. Um, or Greek. Uh, and yet mm. they're the ones who have to save the lazy Gondorians' asses. And yeah, totally. you know what I mean? It, it's just, it's so, it, it just works, you know? How I mean, about Tolkien that just fucking... had an instinct that that would be cooler than Gondor doing it by themselves. Yeah, no, totally. And how about the and how about the fucking like the signal fires burning across the mountaintops? Like even just I mean, honestly, man, like even just thinking about it like gives me chills. Like that like goosebumps every fucking time. That's that what I want to do for the title sequences. music. We can do that, I guess. We well, Battle of Evermore is great too. That sequence is I amazing. Know. It, it it messes me up like it like god it, it is emotional and you're just watching a couple fucking campfires get lit and you're like oh my god oh my god so good it's so crazy <laughs> like, is it's ridiculous well what they, they just took helicopter shots of the whole country and put little cgi fires like that's the yeah, whole thing but it works it's fucking ridiculous but i love so well they made the it music just, it's the score it's score the score is amazing so i was so the, the track that's associated with that and the soundtrack is nine minutes long but the scene itself mm-hmm. is like six from the moment that Gandalf tells Pippin to go up the tower to when Aragorn mm-hmm. sees the light and runs into the to the throne room yeah. is like six to seven minutes. Wow, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's amazing. So long, it's so great because of the music. Good for them. Yeah, I dude. can't. I can't. It does not feel that long. It feels great. And the lighting of the fires is the perfect example. Um, Amon Dean, I believe it's called. Yeah. It, that's a perfect example of something that, yes, comes from the book, but even more importantly, transmits the spirit of the book. Like, even if that particular scene did not exist in the book and they made it in the movie, it would still be pretty awesome because it totally yes. makes sense. I'm always talking with science fiction and fantasy about what I call mechanics, right? Uh, like, the mechanics of the universe. Because, mm. you know. Things don't have to be realistic. Like, you have monsters and orcs and stuff, but it needs to be internally consistent. Consistent. Agreed. You Agreed. know? And, and what's yes. what's so great about Tolkien, as complicated as it is, and as fantastical it is, there is an internal logic and consistency. And so right. the mechan- that's exactly how you would communicate 500 miles, you know? Yes. I mean, that, yeah, it, no, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That, You're totally right. How, totally how you would do it. 
So oh, wait a minute. Yeah. I just thought about this. I've yeah. never even considered this. You know how Elrond comes in with a sword in the third movie? Yes. Instead of just making it for him and Which, and which just bookmark that really quick because I really want to talk about that. Go ahead. Yeah, well, well, one one kind of interesting thing about Strider is that he... Okay, fine. Well, yeah, we'll we'll go into it. You want you want to do the whole? No, 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 no. Go ahead. I was just. uh, I'm curious what you're going to say. I just I want to talk about that. Well, I just thought about how the fact like how fast how fuck how the fuck like just logistically are they going to get there so goddamn fast? Right. That is actually kind of a weird thing that I never even considered. I talk kind of takes me out of it. I talk Mm -hmm. a lot in the commentaries about distances and numbers of armies in both the book and the movies and how. Um, if you think too hard about it, even in the book, uh, yeah, it doesn't make wavy. total sense. Mm-hmm. Because, for example, when when Gandalf in in the movie Two Towers, uh, when Theoden decides to go to Helm's Deep, Gandalf tells Aragorn, you know, stay with him. I'm gonna bring help to you. Basically, we don't know it's Aomer at the time, but we kind of suspect it. But, um. He is. They said that he is three hundred leagues away, Amr. Right. So okay. that's nine hundred miles. Okay. Yeah, that's absurdity. So you know, I, I I don't know. I could see how Shadowfax could do that in a couple of days, <laughs> but I don't so know how you get normal war horses nine hundred miles in less no, yeah, than two to three weeks at most. All right, all right. But but uh, all right. So instead, right, so let's, yeah. So let's, let's let's take that objection off the table. But, uh, okay, so one thing that's really interesting about Aragorn and the fight on Weathertop is that Aragorn doesn't even own a sword at that point in the book. He has shards of Narsil, but what, like, he's facing things that can't be killed. Wait, he doesn't weapons. have a sword? He does not have a sword. He has the, like, he holds his hilt and, like, kind of pretends to threaten the hobbits, but then he actually just pulls it out and shows it on the table and shows him that it's not even a blade. Okay, well, can, can you the hilt. can you bridge this with a recap of what really happened at Weathertop? Because I do not remember, and this yeah, all, this is all connected. So. All right, so let me, well, I'll take a step back. So in the book, and I think this is more interesting. Strider is actually at first essentially a nonviolent, like he's basically a pacifist who's like doing things in the world via like scouting and political things in order to like keep people at bay. But he does not have a weapon. He has a broken sword. Uh, and like he just survives on his wits and doesn't need to get into conflicts, and that's the kind of figure that he is. This happens with Frodo at the in at Bree, and he he pretends to threaten him. He says, "No, I'm not a servant of the Dark Lord, actually, and I, this isn't even a real sword." And he pulls it out and shows him that it's just a broken blade and a hilt. And so they're like, "Oh, wow, that's weird. That's interesting." So then they go to Weathertop, and then what they're doing is they're looking for signs of Gandalf because they, they know they were going to meet him there, but they don't find it. And eventually um, they find a whole bunch of other tracks, and they realize that this place has recently been scouted. And then the Nazgul, they realize, are there, and um, it's getting dark. And they know that the Nazgul are going to become stronger when they get dark, but they have no, they, they're, they're, they're going to get killed if they try to move because they're not all on horses. So what they do is they're like, all right, they don't love fire. So what we're going to do is build a big-ass campfire. Which is ridiculous, by the it. way, because they, they're, the guy that they serve is basically an no, no, so elemental. No, but, yeah. no, no, but he's not, he's not actually in the book. And they say like, you know... The, well, the, just Mount the, Doom they, and that whole thing, yeah. Well, yeah, I know, the lava. But, you know, the guy says like, you know, their their master uses fire for many purposes, but these creatures do not love fire. Like it's also light, um, and so 
they they put all their they you know they actually even call that shit out. So they put their all their backs to the fire and they hold flaming sticks in front of them to try to keep them at bay and they're and basically aragorn just tries to talk them through the night and keep them distracted and keep them from getting to be afraid and eventually what happens is they're standing on the outside of this ring of people they can't they still can't quite tell who's where because they can't see and they can't bring up their horses and their horses are kind of one of the things that see for them but they're like basically like they're trying to like exert their will and try to get uh, Frodo to put on the ring, and he does. And only when he does do all of them like then see him and go, "Oh, there we go. Now we can go for him." So there's no fighting, there's no anything. They're just sort of on the outside, just trying to figure out where in this hateful like ball of light might the ring be. He puts it on. Right, three of them come forward. He pulls out his sword, which is now all of a sudden, you know, he got these from the Barrow Whites. Now this thing is like a flaming brand in his sight because he's in the ring world. And two of the three, like, actually step back and are like, oh, fuck, that's actually one of the only things that can hurt us, right? But then the king of them is, like, made of stronger stuff. And he goes in, and he doesn't actually want to, he doesn't, you know, he goes in with his dagger that's basically meant to turn uh, Frodo into one of them. And he stabs him, and he would, and he would have, uh, he would have done it, except for at the last moment, uh, Frodo stabs the dude in the foot and makes an invocation of, uh, you know, Elbereth, Gethoniel, whatever, and that uh, that makes the the king have to step back and run away because he, he's actually been wounded by this thing, but he got in his hit, which is supposed to turn Frodo into like a wraith zombie type creature. So that is enough. There was only five of them instead of the full nine, so they weren't at their strength. Um, but they don't they don't attack. Um, and Aragorn says the reason why they don't attack is because they know they 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 are very confident that they think that you will um, succumb to them if they wait, and that they don't need to try to take it by force and risk another like injury by one of the only things that can actually hurt them. Which is so, very unrealistic. I mean, I think the movie yeah. is way more realistic in terms of what well, would I don't happen think in so. that situation. I, no, no, no. I kind of of course they're freaking ring race. They got big ass ring race swords. Go just go stab Frodo. And the only thing that's not realistic is why don't they kill him? They they hit him in the shoulder. They should have just stabbed him through the chest. But whatever. No, but the whole point is that they want him to turn into the wraith creature so they can like get him. And, and, and you know, and eventually, and it does mention it does mention in the book that you know you see uh, once they step forward, you know he starts throwing like things with fire around. But I kind of like the idea that he's just like using a fire thing, and it's not about him, you know, actually fighting them with a blade because they're not entirely corporeal beings. Okay, so a um, quick a quick question, and then I, I want to talk about the the blade itself, Narsil, which becomes Anduril. So how does Aragorn get mad fighting skills then if he's never fought before in the book? It's not that he's never fought before, but that he is essentially that is not that is not he doesn't rely on that. Like that's not what's going to help him in this journey. It it's seems weird that he wouldn't carry a sword though. This is the thing. I, I understand the symbolic reasons behind what Tolkien's choices were and it is his work so he can do whatever he wants. From a movie standpoint, they did the exact right thing. He's a great fighter, he has a sword. And I well, okay okay but then, well hold on let me just finish and then you can comment on the whole thing all right which is that I love that they moved the Narsil reforging to the end of the third movie see why because and this is a bigger point of mine this is why I love the Nazgul breaking Gandalf staff and other stuff is that I, I as much as I love Lord of the Rings I love fantasy in general and if you're gonna make a Lord of the Rings movie you should not resist the temptation. 
sometimes to just do fantasy nerd boner stuff. Like having having a Nazgul break Gandalf's staff with a flaming sword. You know, have, uh, you know, I mean, just add elements like, you know, the big hero sword moment, which is so much cooler. I mean, yes, as fans of Tolkien, it's great that he gets, you know, uh, Narso reforged in Fellowship, the council, but it, from a plot and character narrative standpoint, the flow, it all, especially because they're planting seeds in the movies that are in the books, it comes together when Elrond. Elrond, who, by the way, doesn't want Aragorn anywhere near his daughter. Aragorn, who, uh, Elrond, who doesn't want to be involved in the affairs of men, who just wants to leave. But the fact that he is the one to deliver the sword to Aragorn in this moment of need. Plus, in the movie, they push back us. Uh, they push back sort of the confirmation that Aragorn is the rightful king. Right up until he uses Enduriel to. Uh, to pacify the ghosts in the mountain, the men of the mountain, that's when we find out for sure, okay, this guy is 100% the king. I like that they kind of delay that through the movies until the end, and I think the, the, the revelation of the sword as part of that journey, I think is absolutely fantastic from a cinematic See, standpoint I, I and just from don't a think fantasy standpoint. I just don't think you need it, and I kind of like the idea that, like, the forging of this sword, like now he's armed and like now he is the first weapon that matters and that the general sword is not going to be all that helpful. But instead this, this sword is actually like there and good to go. I mean, I see what you're saying. I I understand why they, why they did it is to give it a little bit more dramatic tension and have him like coming home. Maybe it's the kind of thing in a book. It's like, you don't need it as much because I don't know. Maybe your I also love the scene differently. I think, I think Elrond and, um, well, uh, uh, Hugo Weaving and, and Liv Tyler have amazing chemistry as father-daughter. I also love Hugo Weaving with Aragorn. And where, you know, Aragorn comes to the tent and sees that it's Elrond. And, wait, hold on. And that Aragorn's sort of confused. And, you know, Elrond doesn't say, hey, buddy, I'm here to help save the day. In an almost angry way, he goes, I'm here on behalf of one whom I love. Very clearly stating that he's doing this purely for his daughter and not for humans or for Aragorn even, which goes to your theory about the indifference of the elves towards men. And so, like I said, they find enough ways to connect it to the source material while just moving some stuff around. I'm cool with it. I guess, but you don't need that scene unless you've already gratuitously thrown elves in there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like if you haven't thrown in Helms Deep, you don't need to reinforce the fact that they're arrogant and not really that interesting. Well, if I were, but, if I, if I had to keep one of those two, I would keep the Elrond scene and not the Elves at Helms Deep. Yeah, yeah, word. Okay. Well, okay, well, that's interesting because I kind of feel like it could be the, also to do the kind of thing where the sword has kind of like slipped your slipped your notice for a while, but then it's like finally like I can I get to use it with the dead men, the oath breakers. And I feel like you'd still get a good thing. But I mean, you know, ultimately yeah, it's a niggle. If if it hadn't been written that way, I wouldn't be like, why does he get that sword so late? You know what I mean? Like I never would well, have Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. So I think you're making a good point. I think you're making a good point. Well, let me just ask you this. You know, what is this is sort of a rhetorical question? I'm not trying to be condescending here. What is more important that something appear in the exact place time-wise that it appears no. in the plot in the book or no. that it communicates the spiritual message behind yeah, yeah, what's yeah. going yeah, on? Yeah, 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 yeah. But this is leading to the bigger point, you know, as we sort of wind towards the end here, which is again that the the the, the spiritual um sort of parody 
between the book and the movie is like I would say ninety five percent. Now, if you want to break down characters, I, yeah, I would, dialogue, I would go, it would be less yeah. than that. No, I wouldn't. Ahead. I wouldn't go that far, but I think I think it is m- like a lot. It is quite well done. I think something that also helped me, man, is listening to all of the commentaries of the movies, both the the directors and the actors and the production team. I've listened to all of them for all three movies. And when you realize how much love went into it and how every single shot, every single prop, every single line, whether it worked or not, they were they I mean Peter Jackson had an annotated version of his copy of Lord of the Rings everywhere he went. He, everyone yeah. that was involved with the project, it's like five thousand people I, I, I had am, to read again, the book. I am not saying that it's a uh, No, I'm not accusing you of anything. With, yeah, I'm, I'm just talking about I'm love. just talking about how I've Basically, what I'm yeah, saying no, is I've I, come I to you. love it more over time. Is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. There were the, the th- there were things that bothered me about the movies at first, but over time, as I've watched them more and learned more about them, and heard just how much love everyone put into it, and how they tried to be um, loyal to the source material as much as possible, gave no, me greater I appreciation. I agree. I agree. And I mean, that is one of the reasons why we got excited was because we saw like the amount of care and effort they were putting into makeup and armor and like forging weapons. And the fact that they actually had like active like blacksmith shops in order to make this happen in like a way that had not happened in many, many, many years. Like all that kind of shit was was amazing. And I do agree that like that is way more important than the other things. We're, we are talking about the, the smallest of, of problems. And my, my, two, my only two real big problems that sure. I have with the whole movie really are – I don't think Gandalf should have been dis, disem, like, you know, dispowered, disempowered. I agree whatever. with you on that one. And, and I don't like the elves at Helm's Deep. But really like that's my biggest problem. My, and then – oh, man. And then the only other thing was having – Okay, I almost hesitate to bring this up, no, but no. it does kind of kill it. Were you at all like taken out of it when Gollum kind of doesn't burn up on entry and he kind of was like floating in the lava? Love it. Bit? I love it. I love you the love image. It? Yep, because you know I love it because when he's floating in the lava and he's and he's holding the ring up and he there's a look of horror on his face. At first you think the look of horror is because he's dying, but it's not. The look of horror is that he's going to not be able to keep the ring. He's, he's so far gone that the, the existence and persistence of the ring is more important than his own life. I absolutely love it. I think it was perfect. I love – it's funny that you mentioned that. I wanted to ask you about the whole Mount Doom sequence, you know, starting from when Sam gives the, you know, the Rudy speech and starts marching. Yeah, I, love the, uh, I love the Rudy Frodo, speech. Uh, I love Sean Astin, man. I, I mean – he did a great job. I, I talk about in the commentaries that I think his casting was more important than Frodo's. Because I agree with you. I agree with you. He very had to strongly. carry so much of the emotional arc of that story. And in fact, I don't think it, I don't think I, not only do I think was it more important than Frodo's, but I actually don't think Frodo was cast as well. Well, you have to keep in mind Elijah Wood was like seventeen when they cast him. Oh Sean God, Astin so was crazy. like in his late twenties already. So uh, we were we were just talking about uh, Gollum and his and his look of despair as he realizes that he can't save the ring, which is good. Actually, I got to be honest. Uh, uh, I think you just sold me on that scene. I'm still stuck on the CGI and the un, you know how unreal that scene looks, but that's all they could do probably at the time, and the existence of that happening of showing that is probably too important to leave out. I think I agree with you. I also fucking love the janky looking thing where like, you know, he's just like piggybacking air and just jumping around. As but it totally fighting. works. You know and exactly what he's not, doing. No, no yeah. I know. I, 
I know that's what I mean. I actually do yeah. like that. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not kidding. I actually really do it's like great. that. And then not until he makes that bite, do you see him scream in the blood. And I mean, right. ugh. yeah. Then he. That's only. Only then is when he. Does All right. It. A couple quick hit questions for you. Okay. And then we'll we'll we'll, yeah. we'll nail this. Okay. The, the first up. two are are uh, sort of like uh, over under type questions. Um. So, so we'll we'll go with Gollum. <laughs> so. Okay. When Gollum has the ring, is dancing around, and Frodo is enraged and goes after Gollum to get the ring back, what percentage of Frodo is doing it because he hates and wants to kill Gollum, and what percentage is specifically about the ring? Oh, I think it's all hate hate Gollum and mad that he's got the ring, mad that he has. Well, they're the connected, ring. I know, but in his mind, is is like in that first moment where he snaps to it. Is it if it, if it was anyone else than Gollum that had the ring? Obviously, it, he's more impassioned because basically, I said it was fifty-fifty in my commentary. It was fifty, it, but but that you okay. can't really separate it. Oh, I it, man. Well, it's weird because now that you mention it, that's not how it happens in the book. In the book, it's Gollum's own. Glee. He just jumps off the cliff, right? He he trips and yeah. falls off basically. Like he's so enamored with it and so like overjoyed that he this was way better falls for the movie though. To his I death, think. this was better. Yeah, yeah, totally. If you just had to be like, what? why did he fall off? Like yeah. what? Like if you can't actually describe the look in his yeah. eye and the fact that he like jumps once twice and then loses his footing and falls like you can't make that look well, good. And it would look ridiculous. And this points to a, a bigger point. Maybe this is where we can sort of wrap up. Is that not only is it better that they have to fight and they both go over the side and Frodo you know happens to catch the ledge, but that Frodo's thinking of oh I forgot that yeah, <laughs> but that Fro- Frodo is actually considering suicide. And Sam is basically, when he says, don't you let go, don't you let go, that's the suicide speech, right? That's what you say to people when they're at the yeah, top of the yeah, building. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and this goes back to what we talked about before, which is that the movie made dark portrayals of basically every character, or darker portrayals, you know? I mean, even Aragorn has a dark side. Gandalf has a dark side. Frodo has a dark side. Um, and I think you needed to do that in the movies, because as great as Lord of the Rings is... Even the best characters are two-dimensional or two-and-a-half-dimensional. The movie, you had to make your main character, Sam, Frodo, Aragorn, Gandalf, had to make them three-dimensional. Even uh, Merry and Pippin end up mostly three-dimensional. Gimli, I think, is. Legolas is two-dimensional, but that's... Sort of how he was in the book too. He's just sort of a warrior. Yeah, agreed. Um, so well, also, Galadriel, Elrond—they're darker portrayals. I, I liked it. I like that they did that. Yeah, I, I like just this one shot where you know Frodo's grasping his hand with the finger off and the blood coming down like that. That's also like a great little shot. So it's worth it. And yeah, I mean, fuck it. Like to, I always thought it was actually lame that Gollum just like teetered once, twice, and slips right. off. Like I hated that. I actually had kind of wanted it to maybe be the thing. Yeah, the Frodo pushes him off, uh, or that Sam pushed him off. Right. Is the other thing that I kind of thought could have been interesting. Right. So, do you think um, that um, sort of overall, do, do you like that the movie had sort of a darker portrayal of the characters than in the book? I'm not sure it is much darker. I mean, I guess Galadriel's darker for sure. I think Galadriel, Elrond, and Denethor. Oh my God, did I do a good Aragorn, job making him darker? I think. I don't know. Or Maybe. at least he's more tormented. Mm, yeah, yeah, but that's also just like actually being able to see facial True. expressions, like you know, having to see him emote versus sort of 
hearing his reactions in the book. You know, it's like they don't give it to you a lot of times from his like emotional perspective because you're not in his head. Like the narrator is giving less information there. But no, I think the big I think the big changes are are Denethor and the two king, you know, the two high elves, and those are ones that needed flushing mm-hmm. out. I think the most. Although they um, didn't, Denethor has a palantir, I believe, in the book, and they don't talk about that in the movie. Do they not? Mm-hmm. Not even in the extended no, I guess they cut. Don't. No, they, they no, have to, right? That, that was my main criticism they... of uh, in my commentary of Return of King Extended is that it, he seems to hate his son so irrationally, but if you add the Palantir into the picture, things start to make a little more sense. So that that would have been one thing I would have put in. I understand why they didn't, though. You know, they already had so much other Palantir stuff going on, and it works as a Shakespearean say- thing anyways. Doesn't he sort of say like that he does know that he knows how futile it is? And how does he know that aside from... That's the thing. They hint it. Or am I just transposing? No, 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 no. They hint it. I'll give it to the movie makers. They leave the door open that he does have it. They just never show it or mention it specifically. But the fact that he knows, if you're a reader, you're going, okay, it's from the Palantir. But yeah, so, you know, whatever. Little things like that. I I like the darker portrayal overall. And of him, yeah, I agree. And I also love his fucking little like walk off there, like so passes Denethor, yeah. last steward of yeah. and Son he of just see him running off the fucking thing and just jumps off the edge of the cliff, just like Well and the camera awesome. pulls back hugely as he's jumping off and by the time he's like you see like how small this is in the grand scheme the, of this by battle. By the time he's like a quarter way down the mountain, you don't even see him and you just see the orcs invading and it's just another death. I love that. Yes, he's supposedly this big lord steward, but you pull back, you know, it seemed like a dramatic death. Yeah, but yeah, 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 yeah. Really yeah, yeah. irrelevant yeah. when it comes down to it. Oh, this is this will be my yeah, last quick question. That's a great point. That's a great point. My last point. quick question for you is um does the stuff in terms of the burning of Faramir and Gandalf's trying to rescue Faramir. Does that happen like that in the book? Like, why does Gandalf leave the battle to save Faramir? Is it just because he's a he's a, a noble or whatever? He, it's that he's an important leader and that he's not dead. And uh, and that, yeah. yeah I guess my theory was that, you know, at that point he had already done all he could in the battle, the main battle. And, if you know, assuming they win, assuming the ring's destroyed and Aragorn becomes king... Faramir is going to be very, very, very important, even though he's not a king. But as Aragorn's right-hand both, man is going to be very important going forward. I think they both need him to lead troops, but I also think there's a lot of obligation on Gandalf for the death of Boromir. Mm-hmm. And I think he actually still did feel very much indebted. Mm-hmm. Um, he tries to sort of play down that debt so that he's not in Denethor's pocket, but I think he wasn't going to let another one of these children of this guy die, even if it was at that guy's will. Um, I think a lot of it was the, 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 the passing of Boromir. All right, dude. Well, I'll wrap up with just a few big questions. Um, okay. If you would rank um, from least favorite to most favorite the movies and, and give a, a grade. Oh, man. My number one's Fellowship. Number one favorite's Fellowship. Okay. Yeah, that's my number one. You don't have one. to give a grade, just the order. Oh, man. Then, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't have a – I may not have a grade. I think then I have to go – go to if i could take out the scene where the elves coming in it would go fellowship two towers return interesting of the interesting but i think based on how things went if i go with theatrical releases it's definitely fellowship return of the king two towers mm-hmm. um because that shit with gandalf doesn't happen which i love <laughs> which you I love, love i fucking hate um 
But no matter what, uh, Fellowship to me is also the most interesting in a lot of ways of the three books. It's one unified storyline, uh, and it's one continuing journey and narrative between people. Yeah. So both in me- in order of books and in, in terms of the movies, like that was always well, plus, be my favorite. And then the yeah. other two are almost interchangeable. And for plus me. in Fellowship, there's all these monsters. I mean, from the Barrowite to the Balrog yes. to the lake monster that traps them in Moria. I love that lake monster. You, you, uh, other than oh Shelob, you don't really get monsters in the second two books. Um, by the way, did you know, um, you know, at the, the very end of Return of the King, where they're fighting outside the Black Gate, and they're just buying time for Frodo and Sam, and the good yes. guys are getting their asses kicked, and that big troll comes and steps on Aragorn, he like step, he steps, and yeah, then Aragorn yeah. stabs him in the foot or whatever. That was Sauron originally. In the original plan for the movie, they were going to have an embodied Jesus. Sauron in that scene fight Aragorn briefly. And have Aragorn be getting his ass kicked by Sauron, and then uh, and then you know he would be exploded when when the ring is is dead. I didn't know that's a little trivia for you fans out there. Oh my god, that's terrible. I'm glad they didn't do that because I mean the whole point is that he actually needs the ring also to become corporeal. Yes. Like the whole point is that he's not even physically alive right. and he's still able to do this. Yeah. Like. That's part of what makes it so incredible. I, I don't think that idea um, got very far, but Peter Jackson was very open about that they were considering it, which would have been the Hollywood temptation, and more props to PJ there for resisting that particular seriously. temptation. All right. Um, seriously. So we got the three movies. They're all pretty close for me. Like I said, I used to like them in forward order the most. Now I think I like them in backward order the most. You like Return of the King, Extended. The Two Towers, and then Least Fellowship. I guess just because... Of the six cuts, let's put it this way. If there's three theatrical cuts and three extendeds, of the six cuts, my yeah. favorite is the extended version of Return of the King. That, to me, is perfect. Um, it also has the greatest deleted scene of all time, which was egregious, and I don't understand why, which is... Which is? In which the is? aftermath of ba- Battle of Pelennor Fields, they come up with the idea that they need to march to the Black Gate and draw out uh, Sauron's forces. The mouth of Sauron. Right, and, and draw out Sauron's forces in order to buy time for Sam and Frodo. And, you know, Gandalf says, you know, Sauron will be suspecting that this is a, a trick. You know, he's not going to buy it. You know, I don't, he's not going to, you know, believe it. And Aragorn says, oh, I think he will. And now in the theatrical cut, they don't explain what he means by that. And they're just marching towards the Black Gate. In the extended, he then goes into the throne room where the Palantir is, picks up the Palantir, and starts yelling at Sauron and holds up the sword, you know, saying yeah, the yeah, sword yeah. has been reforged to, you know, basically, fuck you, come and get me. And then he sees that Sauron's eyes on Arwen dying and that the, the thing falls off and breaks the necklace, which he had had a vision of early. It's a 20-second scene that would totally sell why Sauron would buy this ruse, that normally there would be no way Sauron would buy the ruse. But by him being able to hold the plantier with the sword and having one at Minas Tirith, you can almost buy that someone like Sauron would you know, take the bait. I don't understand. Yeah. And just the way it's filmed and the music is amazing. Amazing. I don't know. I don't understand why those scenes get cut. But... That's why they make the movies and we don't. The only reason why I don't have the... I have Fellowship also above Return of the King is that Fellowship does so much incredible world building. And I think without it, you can't have the other two movies at all. Like, it does so much heavy fucking lifting with all the wraiths, with 
I mean, it sets the right tone. So I just think it's more important. But then also, I think Return of the King ultimately is actually a less interesting work because so much of it is the is that like cool down period. And I'm glad they did that, and I really would not have had them do it another way. But to me, it's I'm glad to see it, but it does it's not as good a movie as you know as that you know it's it's easier to make a great movie where everything's ramping up and going towards some place to have it all sort of cool down and then well, like go to like the pastoral life. It's it's yeah. hard. It's just not as. So well, I, it just can't be. My that's favorite. why my second favorite of the six cuts is the theatrical version of Two Towers because I love the pacing. I always love the middle movies: Empire Strikes Back, Matrix Reloaded. I mean, for the most part, the middle movies. Yeah, but Empire Strikes Back is is no one would disagree with you on that. No one likes. Right, but there's any something other about just the fighting. structure of the trilogy where the middle movie is always going to be the darkest. It has to be right. You have some victories in the first one, and then things get really dark in the second, and then they end up winning eventually in the third. But like I said, there's a lot of marching around nature silently with music, which I love in The Two Towers. And the warg battle plus the Battle of the Hornburg at Helm's Deep. Just amazing fight. I mean, that's about it. I mean, I agree yeah. with you. It's the best battle. And in the movie, even though sure. I don't think the Ents were 100% realized the way I wanted them to be, from a spiritual standpoint, in terms of what it was conveying about nature and Tolkien's idea of environmentalism, was totally on point i mean i yeah. I've, I've read an entire book i just send this to you by a, a tolkien scholar who wrote about uh tolkien and environmentalism he, he wrote extensively in his own journals and diaries about his his fear for what was happening to the environment and i i, I think they were able to convey that with the ends without being preachy or moralistic i thought um personally Word. and so but yes but fellowship it's like you know it's like your first kiss you know and as you say it's world building yeah. and so when i really think about it when i'm reading it it's just based on sort of rewatchability like what am i most likely to just pop on you know it would be either two towers regular cut or return of the king extended because the fellowship does have a really long beginning with the shire and stuff which i love but it doesn't get right into the action like the other two do. That's all. This is just re- it's like with Matrix Reloaded. I would never say Matrix Reloaded is better than The Matrix, but I've watched it more times just because the fight scenes are cooler and longer and from a rewatchability standpoint, more, you know, is more fun, but it's not a better movie. Yeah, see, I, I actually find Fellowship more rewatchable. Cool. I agree there's a long intro, but yeah, man, Moria. You can't beat Moria. Not even the Hornburg beats Moria to me. Okay, so as we wrap up here, I wanted to plug um, Adam's own podcast that he has. It's been going on for a while. Uh, Adam, why don't you tell the people a little bit about the podcast? Absolutely. Uh, The podcast is called Waste of Time Machine, and that is exactly what we do. We waste your time with uh, (laughs) friendly, little, wonderful gags. As opposed uh, to what we're doing here. As opposed to what we're doing here, which is clearly (laughs) important research. Um, yeah, so it's I record it with the incredible uh, Dave All. If you're from Wesleyan, you probably know him. Uh, he's a good tick-a, friend tick-a, of Jesse's as well. He actually also worked with you, right? Uh, did a lot of uh, sound engineering on uh, Modiba uh, in the Indeed. early days. Indeed, yeah. the original Modiba foursome was myself, Adam here, Dave All, who does Waste of Time Machine podcast with Adam, and our good buddy Eric Herman, who is the only one left standing running uh, Modiba Company. Although I, I am still involved, but uh, Eric, Eric got stuck with it. We all moved on to other things. But uh, definitely 
a very cool bond that we have, I think, you know, on top of everything else, just, we started it in college. We had success so much quicker. It, I mean, I know it helped boost my career going forward. I assume it helped your career on some level going forward. Actually, I would say that, um, the success that I had with it is pretty much responsible for me actually getting started and treating this like a real business, believing, uh, in myself that I actually could be a designer and support myself. Which, you know, of course is the case. It's not actually that hard or that crazy, but when you've been going through a purely academic track and, you know, I had never really taken design courses uh, at that time. And so I hadn't really started to wrap my head around the fact that this is actually a way of life I could have. Um, So, yeah, no, Mm -hmm. you you guys gave me some of my first real gigs and definitely some of my uh, my favorite work in those early years, uh, those would be the yeah. things that I'd show in an interview or those would be the things I'd show off in a portfolio. Um, mm-hmm. cause obviously the corporate stuff was way less, uh, you know, you, you couldn't be that proud of that. You know, you theoretically did it, but it just, it didn't show a vision and at least, uh, there was sort of a cohesive art direction for Modiba. So yeah, it was very helpful. Yeah. And I'm, um, you know, as, as we wrap up here, I, I, I'm always encouraging younger people to take the long view about their careers, especially when they just get out of college is the time, um, you know, to experiment and take a job that is going to be good for your future, even if it doesn't pay you the most money. I mean, none of us made a lot of money from Modiba, but helped all of us going forward in so many ways. Um, I, I'm sure you would agree with with that, you know, if, if you were talking to someone kind of just out of college, which is, that's the time to kind of take some risks and be creative. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You, you, there's, especially with design, I, there's no other way to do it. You're probably going to get some crappy gigs and then you're going to need to uh, do some of the cooler stuff in your spare time. And, uh, uh, you know, I was, I was freelancing on the side while I was working on something else and it, it, that all worked out well, but typical to me, uh, I got completely distracted over the thing I was trying to tell you, uh, which was yes. that podcast. So let well, me I reframe. enabled it. I enabled well, it. You know, yeah. What, yeah. Well, you know, you're an enabler. That's your problem. I am an enabler. Uh, we, uh, we, uh, so anyway, this, this original foursome, now Jesse's right. got himself a podcast. Dave and I have a podcast. One day, maybe Eric will have a podcast, but Dave and my podcast is called uh, waste <laughs> of time machine. Uh, we talk mm-hmm. about Apple technology surrounding businesses and then occasionally nerd alert. Just nerd alert. And occasionally it goes into just sort of uh, a cute repartee between friends. So we'll oftentimes go into cooking, uh, other stuff mechanical problems with our cars, et cetera. Um, and in many ways, it is just the further blossoming, burgeoning relationship of two uh, lovely friends who love each other and love wasting your time. They're in love. I am. Okay, great. Well, this is awesome. <laughs> that podcast is still a thing and not just still a thing. It's growing. You know, I mean, radio and TV are dying. Everything's video online and yet podcasts continue to be a source of entertainment and information for a lot of people. And I know I've loved doing it. I know you've loved doing it. It's great that we finally got to do it together. I hope Hell to yeah. be on your hope to be on your show sometime and we're already talking about forming a podcast community so if there are any other podcasters out there who have interesting and different podcasts please feel free to get in touch with us and uh you know maybe we can build this into a a real movement here there's some great stuff word up i love it awesome um all right buddy thanks so much for being on it was you know amazing as we knew it would be and uh (laughs) clocking in at like three hours before cut um, oh, three I think three and talk- a half hours. Three and a half hours before cut. 
Uh, we could we could easily um, go for five or six, I think, and then yeah. continue on. But um, I hope people loved this podcast as much as we love doing it. And I will be releasing <laughs> my commentaries for the three Lord of the Rings movies extended editions over the next couple weeks. So this launched it. Um, and I couldn't have imagined a better co-host. So I thank you, <laughs> kind sir. I thank you, kind sir. And uh, all I got to say is, so say we all. (laughs) You shall not pass. (laughs) All right, people. Thank you for listening. And we are out. Out. Out.